And before the True Crime Podcast begins, a word from our sponsor. Support for the True Crime Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your crown jewels. Manscaped just launched the fourth-generation trimmer, the lawnmower. 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code SEAN20, S-H-A-U-N-20, at manscaped.com. Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and an incredibly comfortable grooming experience. The fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. I now feel comfortable shaving my boys. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code SEAN20, S-H-A-U-N-20, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code SEAN20, S-H-A-U-N-20, at manscaped.com. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job. In this case, the nut job at manscaped.com. Welcome to today's podcast. And you may remember John from the previous podcast we did about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he has come back with Chris. And Chris, my goodness, I've just been reading the back cover of his book and his sister's book. It's sadly, his sister's no longer with us. I just want to say that, you know, his bravery and his his spirit and his humour just absolutely shines. But we are going to be going to some dark places today. If you are not disposed to hear harrowing content, then I suggest that you tune out at this point. And as a disclaimer... We are just going to say that that um, this is an educational video. It's a documentary style interview. It's you know you've heard a lot of John's story from last time. We're going to get into depth of, of Chris's story um, this time, and it's just you know his factual based account. And if the Jehovah's Witnesses want to exercise their right of reply. They are welcome to come on the channel and to give their response to this interview and everything we've done on the Jehovah's Witnesses so far, which would include the other interview that we did with John, which was about a year or so ago now, wasn't it? All right, so just so people know what we're getting into here, in case this is not for you, I'm just going to, I'll read you the back of, first of all, I'll read you the back of Chris's sister's book. It's called Tortured. Abused and neglected by Britain's most sadistic mom. This is my story of survival by Victoria. And all right, so it says, as a child, Victoria was brutally beaten, neglected, and starved by the woman she called Mummy. To the outside world, Eunice was a devoted 
parent, but behind closed doors she was an evil tyrant. Instead of protecting, loving and caring for Victoria, she forced something down her throat, did something to her teeth, did something with ropes. It's the first five minutes on YouTube, I'm not allowed to say these things. And made her live in squalor. It took 18 years of heartache and despair before she found the courage to expose her mum. This is a gripping story of survival. All right, so I'm just going to read you the back of Chris's book now as well. So in April 2007, 62-year-old Eunice was sentenced to 14 years in prison. So this is a, this is a documented court case. This is not speculation. It's not a conspiracy. This is a documented court case. And we are allowed to report on documented court cases, but we now are under court order to have the people in these court cases, especially if they are victims, to tell us that they are waiving the anonymity. So you've come here today, Chris. Are you waiving your anonymity? Absolutely. All right, brilliant. So I'll read you the back, what it says at the back of the book. Um, So that was uh, in prison for 14 years for the systematic wounding, cruelty, and assault of the vulnerable children whose welfare had been entrusted to her. Her Gloucestershire home should have been a refuge. Instead, it became a prison, where over the course of 20 years, her charges were routinely abused and tortured. To the outside world, Jehovah's Witness Eunice presented herself as a pillar of the community. Behind closed doors, she was a sadistic tyrant who beat the children with metal bars forced things down their throats and made them eat lard, bleach, and things that I can't even say on on YouTube. Oh, my God. The details of the trial horrified the nation and attracted considerable press attention. Now, for the first time, one of the victims, known in the case as Child C, the book is called Child C, and Chris is presently working on a follow-up, um, and now 19 years old, this is when it was published in 2008, tells the full shocking story of what, what, what went on in Eunice's house of evil. Chelsea is a gripping, heartbreaking story of enforced isolation, psychological and physical abuse, and a childhood denied. Despite all he's been through, Chris is a survivor with a zestful life, and we've just had a meal with Chris, and he's an absolute riot. With his former foster mother in prison, he can finally tell the story of his suffering and what it is like to grow up brutalised and abandoned with no one to hear your plight. And many of you are asking, you know, who's Jen, the new co-host? If you've not seen Jen yet, Jen is my friend who runs an organic cotton clothing business and her links are all in the description box below this video and we'll, we'll put her trailer on at the end of the video as well. If you want to check her out on Instagram... That's where she resides. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, John and Chris, thanks very much for coming back, John. And thanks for coming. Yeah, Chris. thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Um, so, we'll, we'll we'll start with you then, Chris. Were you born into the world of Jehovah's Witnesses, like many of the people we've interviewed were born into a religious family? So, I was adopted into it, basically, or fostered into it. Um, uh, my real parents. Um, were alcoholics and drug takers and had you know were facing some severe addiction problems and Eunice offered to help when um, my mum ended up going into hospital and the surgery went wrong so 
you know, Eunice was a pillar of the community within the Jehovah's Witnesses at the time and was always offering to help families who were going through, um, you know, serious issues. So we very quickly got whisked away into Eunice's care. So from about the age of three, I started my journey into Eunice's care and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Do you have memories of when you were free or before? So I've I've got a really vivid memory, and I can actually remember you know, we worked out from around two years on onwards. So I can remember the house before we went to Eunice's. You know, um, and it was it was pretty horrific. You know, we went from one bad situation to a worse <laughs> one. Mm. But yeah, I remember no carpets, um, um, squat style. Basically, basically, okay. yeah. I remember having to hunt for food uh, with my sister at two or three years old. So, um, was it just you and your sister, the only siblings at that time? Yeah, and then uh, my younger sibling uh, brother came along later on. So, and Eunice uh, very quickly took care of him as well. How so many the, children did she have there? So Eunice had five children. Right. Um, so two she'd legally adopted, uh, Victoria and another girl called Charlotte who died later on. And then there was uh, Aloma, myself and my brother who were all blood siblings. Okay. So. What do you remember of the transition then from your natural parents to Eunice? What Do you remember like people coming in? and So the way Eunice did this was quite clever. It was a private fostering arrangement. So we didn't have all the same checks with social workers and things. Um, you know, she still got paid by the council. She, um, was meant to get checked monthly, but it just never happened. Um, but I, re- I remember, you know, arriving in Eunice's care, amazingly happy. You know, she had this house full of toys. She had sand pits in the garden, you know, from going, from nothing at all to everything. You know, as a three, four-year-old, amazing. It was incredible. Um, I, you know, it was a little while before things started to slip. Um, well, I say slip, they went off a cliff. Mm. What was the signs of that happening? It, the thing is, there were no signs. No. It, it literally went off a cliff. Um, Just completely off a cliff? Yeah, so... What was the cliff? The, the I call it the red line instant, and that's how I've described it in the past. And it was the first time she really, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are quite strict. So, did you understand it back then that it was a Jehovah's Witness situation, or was it just um, were you too young at that age? I think I was too young, really. I remember her trying to explain it to us, and um, I really didn't care. <laughs> I just wanted to go play in the sand oh, <laughs> That's yeah. all I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, it was after the red line incident uh, where we, um, I could tell you that in a minute if you'd like, but it was after that incident where suddenly the religion became apparent. Yeah, yeah. and became the dominating force and almost the excuse for her to continue this abuse. So what was the incident then? So the red line incident was some um, chocolate had gone missing in the house and no one would own up to eating it and to this day i still can't remember i think we did work out who took it in the end but it wasn't me and we were all lined up in charlotte's bedroom all in a circle and she had a chair leg and she threatened us again you know who took the chocolate 
and we were all barefoot in a circle and then she started striking the tops of the feet but bear in mind i'm four years old you know sisters are not that much older seven eight and that's the first time i've you know we've ever felt real pain we'd been smacked a couple of times before but real proper pain to the point where you want to pass out Mm. and it you know in one day it'd gone from zero to 100 miles an hour you know it was as if she'd flicked a switch and our lives were going to change forever. How does a child's brain process that? It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> it, it still hasn't. Um, I still, I sit there and think at least once a day, why, how, you know, you can read up on psychology, you can read up on a million different things. I still don't know why. And, you know, Things like chocolate going missing happen all the time in everyone's houses. Yeah, <laughs> happens a lot in my house, as you can tell. Um, but <laughs> and but, you are to blame for that one. <laughs> but you know, there's no way mentally a child can cope with that. And I remember for the first time being scared, for the first time not knowing who this person was. You know, she'd been mummy before that. And now she switched. was. Yeah, she was a torturer. It was crazy. So did it cool off after that and then something else happened or did it become more frequent? Um, so after that incident, it was a couple of weeks before the we, next the next incident. Um, that time, I can't even remember what the incident was that time, but we were made to run up and down stairs until one of us collapsed and that was considered... Um, that was considered... Um, normal for her and that became a regular thing um, who was it, it that collapsed it was Victoria who collapsed that time um, it, it was ridiculous because I became quite proud that I never collapsed and oh. it's stupid as children you should never think that but I remember willing my siblings on even though I knew actually if one of us collapsed it would end the game it would end the game yeah. and this is all Eunice did it was all games and then about a year later, after these first incidents, uh, the Jehovah's Witness thing really started coming out. And What do you mean by that? So Eunice started telling us the reason she was doing this was because we had the devil in us. Uh, we had demons. We had uh, uncultured, she called it, in us. Um, and we believed it. I, I seriously believed it and still have nightmares of it now. <laughs> Um, so she was doing this in the name of God, you know, in the name of Jehovah, that she was going to get these demons out of us and we had to learn to behave. And, you know, as things got worse over the years later on, um, she almost set us in a motion that we did have to misbehave. You know, if you're being starved for weeks on at a time as a kid, you're just craving food, you will steal food. And then she will, then the process starts again and setting you up for failure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How was the house set up then? Like who slept where? Were there any other adults coming in and out? Did she have complete control? So we, we had multiple houses. Um, we had a house in Northway in Chooksbury. Um, that was quite normal, to be honest. The Northway house, um, normal neighbours. But no one ever came in that house. You know, it was just 
Eunice's domain. And then we also had a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in a little village called Eckington, right on the outskirts of Eckington, where, you know, we could have screamed for days and no one would have heard anything. Did Eunice have a partner? Uh, so she had a partner before um, we arrived, um, but we saw him a few times. He'd come and visit, and I think he probably knew stuff was going on. That's why but, he left. Yeah, All right. and also there was, I think, she was. Uh, people were scared of her. Even people within the religion were. She was not to be trifled with, um, or she could make your life hell. Mm. And so people just left her alone to get on with it and, you know, kept going until 16 years old. 16 years old, oh my God. All right, so what age do you start school? Uh, so age six, I went to school. Um, my total education is about a week. Um, because the first couple of days of school, they noticed, one, I was stealing food out of people's lunch boxes because didn't having it at home and i thought it was amazing there was food everywhere i could take it <laughs> <laughs> um it's quite sad isn't it it really is sad it but i remember being amazed that all these kids had this food and maybe i could take some and the teachers caught on to that very quickly like why are you doing that also i had a lot of unexplained bruises which there's only so many bike accidents a child can have before those bruises become yeah, before people suspect things. So within a week, Eunice had pulled us out of school, right, and uh, registered us with Gloucester Council as self-taught or taught from home. So when they saw your bruises at school, did they a teacher take you to one side and ask you how, what's this? So I was never approached. I was never approached, but I believe well, I've I've learned later on from documents that um, Eunice was approached after school. And she said he'd had a really bad bike accident and the head didn't question it, even though the teacher wasn't happy with it. And we didn't arrive the following Monday. So, Were you excited to start school? Um, to get out of that environment? At this point, we were still kind of believing that this was normal. The abuse and, was normal. And that most children went through this. And, you know, so for me... Yes, I was excited to go to school, but not almost to escape because I thought everyone else, this was just normal. Um, it probably wasn't until I was 12 or 13 that I actually realised that this really isn't normal. So you weren't excited your first day of school, like most kids are? Oh, not really. So first, my first day of school, I was pretty much dragging my right arm because I'd been beaten the night before. So I remember just being in a lot of discomfort and... Um, the first day of school contained sports day. Um, so the first ball that hit my arm, I was in agony. And so what, what, why had the punishment come about the night before? What, what was that infraction? Um, so I hadn't hung up my school uniform before. So her favorite was a chair leg and, uh, she would strike. She was an ex nurse. So she knew where not to cause serious, <sighs> um, bruising, but she, she always went for joints where she knew she could get away with it, but she'd missed and caught my arm and it bruised up quite badly. So, Jesus. So, all right. So that first day in school then, um, did you like make any friends or anything? Well, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. I think I was a bit of an 
a nutcase, to be honest. I had well, so much... around nicking everyone's lunch. <laughs> that as well, that as well. And also, I'd never met other kids before. So, well, you know, a lot of other kids, you know, as I'm learning now, they, they have nursery, they meet other kids beforehand, they have friends. So I was very intense, probably, to be around. And so I think most of the kids avoided me. But it's, you know, it's pretty much a blur because it was only a week. I think we literally started on the Tuesday and we were gone the next Monday. So, How did you feel when you weren't allowed to attend school anymore? So she told me that Jehovah's Witnesses can't go to school. It's against the religion. And I just believed it. I was sad. I was sad because I was quite excited. Um, we were going to start music class. So I was like, it's amazing. I'm going to learn music. And I remember just being really sad that I couldn't do that. At this point, had you met any other Jehovah's Witnesses? So we went to... So our going to church was quite sporadic because we had a lot of bruises and a lot of injuries and even Jehovah's, you know, some Jehovah's Witnesses would question that. As I found out later on, a lot would try and report it to elders and etc. and it would never get dealt with. Um... So Eunice was very careful when she took us to church and we'd always wear long sleeve shirts, you know, um, to be honest, when we went to church, it was pretty weird. We'd all wear, I'll show you guys a photo later, but we'd all wear exactly the same clothes with wacky patterns. So we'd all be a hundred percent matching shoes, socks, everything. It was like something from a, a musical. It was, it was very <laughs> weird. We stood out for all the wrong reasons even within the jehovah's witness faith i'm surprised she wanted to draw attention to you well the, <laughs> that's shocking it, it's weird because yes that drew attention to us but also hiding in plain sight it was almost that mm. yeah the more i look at it now it's um you're so shocked by the fashion you're not looking at the bruises maybe i don't mm. know but yeah so us going to church wasn't as probably regular as you guys went um i think yeah, we'd never go to the Thursday meetings. We'd sometimes go to the Sunday meetings. Um, but she would always be teaching us at home. She'd have the Awake, she'd have the Watchtower, the, those are publications that the Jehovah's Witnesses do. Uh, how often is the Watchtower? How often? Uh, Watchtower comes out every two weeks. Every two so, weeks, um, yeah. And the Awake is monthly, wasn't it? Well, that was every two weeks, I think, in okay. those days. Yeah. Um, and they and they they were used regularly at the meetings, so they yeah. they were the base of uh, the study. Wasn't so, they? I don't know what she had told the other Jehovah's Witnesses, but they would drop those off to us at home, and we would learn them at home. Um, it was only in our early teens that we became very regularly going back to the Jehovah's Witness, um, our local church. So, reading the back of these books, then one of the most horrific things is this: uh, the Eunice forced bleach and urine down the kids' throats. How did it escalate to that level? Uh, so she would always trick us into trying to rat each other out. And then if she caught you lying, we would be made to gargle something. So that was either bleach, TCP, uh, washing up liquid. Um, I, st I still can't have washing up liquid in the house. Uh, How do you wash your dishes? Uh, we do. There's Lidl very kindly. Uh, other brands are available. Uh, but Lidl very kindly do one with no scent at all because wow. the smell, I literally, it's like a PTSD trigger for me. I can't do it. How, how old were you when this, this torture happened? This uh, so around seven to eight, 
was the liquids. So this was when we were in the farmhouse and we would be made to fill our mouth with washing up liquid and walk around the big lawn. She had this large lawn about five or six times. So if you were sick, you'd have to eat the sick and then start again. So it was all oh. it was all about power to her and to scare us into not lying and to just dob each other in. Jesus. So yeah, I I can't deal with washing up liquid now. TCP. I've spent a lot of time in hospitals recently and everything stinks of TCP and it's mm. it's hell for me. I can't can't deal with that. Why did she knock Victoria's teeth out? I don't actually know what caused Victoria's incident with the teeth. Um, we all had pretty bad teeth anyway because we didn't go to the dentist often. And even now I, I struggle with dentists because they're, they're a new thing to me. I just No one likes a dentist anyway, I don't think. <laughs> but um, Victoria being involved in a car accident later in uh later in our lives and had received some mouth injuries as well and i think she was sick of victoria complaining about it so she knocked her teeth out out. so i remember eunice pulling one of my teeth out that wasn't quite ready to come out but she was again sick of us complaining about it so how did she do that uh that was with a tweezer so what did she use on Victoria? I, d- I don't know. I was I was in the fields that day. So in the farmhouse, we didn't actually live in the main farmhouse with Eunice. We lived out uh, either in the summer, I'd camp in the field with my dog. Um, in the winter, there was an old mobile home that we lived in. Uh, no heating, no electric or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, it got pretty bad in the winters. So when you saw your sister with no teeth... What went through your head? <sighs> Nothing. It was quite normal for us to have injuries, you know. Um, the only thing that really shocked me, um, so, so if we were caught lying again, she would try and shock us. And um, Victoria and I both, and uh all had our hands put on the Rayburn at some point. Uh, so Rayburn is like a big um, old-fashioned cooker, and they have this steel top that's coal-fed and, you know, three, 400 degrees quite comfortably, and she would just grab your hand and sear it, basically. Okay, um, because our channel's got um, been in trouble with the police over a certain report in... Let's just leave the names out of any of the other siblings. Yeah. Except for you and Victoria. That's fine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, going forward. So I, should yeah, I say yeah. sister? Yeah, let's I just say that. Get away yeah. That. Yeah. yeah, and we'll have to, we'll have to um, edit those out, those, those names he said so far. Yeah, yeah. Can you bleep them or? Yeah, we'll, we'll mute them out. That's no okay. problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's no problem. You're doing great, man. This is um, something else. This is a completely different world, isn't it? It's, well, it's, it's not a normal world, is it? It's no. not. Um, that's part of the reason how we cope with it we almost think of it as someone else's world because mm-hmm. if you actually let yourself think this happened to you you end up departmentalize it yeah yeah 100 okay. it's the only way we can mm. cope with it and victoria struggled with that and ultimately that's what led to her suicide 
as you're getting older then in these early years do you like even though you're not at school do you ever go out to like a park or do you interact with other kids do you have any friends we had no friends no friends i made my first friend like 18 years old um we never went out unless we were strictly guarded by eunice um we lived doing our houses and the farms and that was it what kind of places did she take you where she guarded you um so i just trying to think well there's a couple of things here um one she she'd have friends within the church who she'd go and visit for coffee um and we would be made to stay she had a big minibus we'd be made to stay in the minibus whatever the weather whatever happened we'd be parked right outside the cafe safeway in chooksbury um going back a bit morrison's <laughs> now um but there was this big glass cafeteria and she would park the van literally beside the cafeteria so she could watch us and th- you have to remember this is also while we're being starved so we're watching people eat while you're sat there struggling to maintain consciousness half the time so we were always guarded you know the reason for that is she did bring us in the cafeteria once and someone commented that we looked bruised so then we stayed in the car after that but it you know we had some good times you know there was a in 98 we all went to florida um eunice had this big dream that we were all going to go to disneyland so we went out to florida for six weeks and from the moment the day of the flights we were treated 100 percent like normal kids bought brand new clothes uh we flew first class you know or business class um which is incredible for kids you know i'd never been on a plane before this is amazing um we were hugged we were and this just wasn't this wasn't just when public were looking at us. This was when we got to the villa and no one was around us. She still treated us like normal children. And for all those six weeks, uh, not one little bit of abuse. And then we would get home and within three days, it all started times 10. It's almost like she took a holiday from her torturing. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. It really was. And that's that's one of the weird things because she was so guarded around us like sitting outside in a van so she can watch us to suddenly turn all that off it was just it was a bit psychotic really who paid for the holiday she she had money um we never know how she had money but she had real money Mm. um you know she was slowly doing up that farmhouse that we were living in um white marble fireplaces uh a kitchen that was ridiculously overspecked, you know, American fridge freezers, nice cars, big Chevy imported from America. How much was she getting per kid from the government? It wouldn't have been a, it wouldn't have been um, the amount she was spending. Right. You know, she was getting quite a lot from. Don't get me wrong, but she she had money, and we to this day we never know where that money really came from. Do you believe it's from the church? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, that, you know. It has been suggested people helped her from the church. Um, I don't know mm. is the actual answer. So you said when you got back, the abuse ratcheted up by 10. What do you mean by that? So we were starting to get a bit bigger at this point. Um, I'd been 98, I was at 10, 11 years old. Um, so I wasn't so scared at that point. So 
the randomness of the attacks changed. So you would be just walking along and she would come up with a hammer and hit you over the back of the head with it. Um, the worst incident for me out, out of the randomness was um, this old farmhouse had sash windows. And inside the sash windows, there's these large lead weights. They look like giant sausages. And each lead weight weighs, it's about eight kilos. They're, they're heavy. And I was sat playing with my younger brother uh, in the just outside one of the buildings. And she just came and hit me over the head with one. And I remember not instantly blacking out, but slowly the lights <coughs> turning off. And you passed out. I, I was out cold. Uh, my sister said I was out cold for 10, 15 minutes. I was, I was gone. Proper KO'd. I remember being able to hear stuff in the background, but then just peace. I remember and it was, I was, I thought actually, oh, this is it. You know, this, she's finally done it. Um, I remember being totally at peace, no pain, nothing. And then, I remember the next thing I remember is my sister bringing me round and I probably died then, to be honest. I probably, if it hadn't been for my sibling, I, would, I wouldn't have come back round. So you said, um, you know, this is it. She's finally done it then. So had you gone from, you know, this is a regular thing, it's, this is normal, to now as you're getting older, believing something's not right here, this person might kill me. Are you getting a bit apprehensive? So I was starting to question, should I fight back? Um, you know, I was quite a strong lad. I could have probably punched her back because she was only a little woman. I never did. Um, I grabbed her. Yeah, you know, we had beatings daily. Beatings were not a problem. I, it grew to the point I didn't even feel the beatings anymore. Um, we could put ourselves, we all had our little places we put ourselves in our brain that we could take half an hour beating quite comfortably. Um, and that, that sounds terrible, but it, for us, it was just a matter of fact. You was know, she beating you with her hands and fists or was she using things? Was it oh, always it, an object? It, it was always objects. Always so object. bamboo sticks was a favorite across the bottoms of the feet. Um, <sighs> chair legs. If we screamed, she'd put a chair leg down the throat to silence oh, us. Chair leg down the throat? Yeah. The police actually took photography of that. Oh, you see God. that in. Mm. Um, so we learnt not to scream because that's quite painful um, but yeah um, beatings weren't really that big a thing for us and she must have noticed that she must have noticed we were coping with them hence the random attacks game you know getting heads across the back of the knee with a cricket bat and not being able to walk for six weeks was um, she was proud of that she, I remember her being quite proud of that Um you know, cuts on the hands. Um, if we stole food, she'd find like a tin of tuna got stolen. Um, she would find the tin and then <sighs> cut across the hands. So I've still got those on my hands. Mm. It went up a notch, you know, and every time we got used to that, she would have to think of a way to scare us again because I think she felt she was losing control of us. Can so, I just ask, because was there a time when I, I seem to remember either reading or you telling me that they had to get splinters out of your throat? So, so this is quite recent, actually. Yeah. Um, so I was having x-rays on wisdom teeth. Um, and most of my teeth are 
I can't swear, can I? Uh, <laughs> most of my teeth are messed up. And um, they took an x-ray and they're like, there's dark objects in your jaw. So instantly you think cancer in the jaw. Um, and so they started digging around in the jawline and it was uh, bits of bamboo stick that had, when she's ramming it into our throat, had splintered off and gone into our cheekbones. Uh, well, into your jawline. So that was quite recent. Mm, um, um, and they found a tiny little triangle of metal in my jawbone, which had turned into a, a small cyst-like tumour. And that turned out to be the tip of a knife. And she'd <sighs> used a knife and it had gone into our jaw with that much force that it just left itself in there. So she'd ramped it up. She'd ramped it up to a point where it yeah we were i i still think that how how did we survive that um luck how close were you then to just like grabbing this woman and being like you know it's got it this is the end basically you're not doing this to me anymore there was one time where she'd i think she'd gone to knock me out so she had a chair leg and it was a favorite of hers as you can tell and she'd hit me across the back of the neck and it hurt it hurt like hell but I hadn't gone down and you could see the rage go up here like something had just lit a firework and she did it again and I grabbed it and that was the first time I've seen her scared and then she just screamed high pitched scream and I, I, I ran out um you know, part of me looks back at that now and thinks, actually, I should have probably just hit her over the head with it. Um, but for years, we'd been, you know, told that she was saving us. You know, and this was our mum, and we didn't hate her; we hated what she was doing. So, I, I you know, years later, with all the injuries, with the hospital visits, you know, making up for all the abuse she's given us now i'm angry <laughs> but back then i just wanted it to stop if she if she would have come in to the room and said actually i'm gonna stop it all we would have forgiven her i think all three of us would have forgiven her whereas now it's a yeah it's a bit different how old were you when that one happened i would have been so that was quite close to the end so i was about 14 at the time that was 14 yeah and how was your sister coping as she's getting older? So my one sister, this is where it gets even weirder. So we had a large car accident um, in the family. We'd gone for a family holidays, the first since um, Florida to Pontins in, um, God, I, I want to say Breen. Yeah, near Western yeah. Supermare. Yeah, that's yeah, it, yeah. Was, so yeah. we'd all... Uh, with some uh, friends of Eunice, other JWs, um, we'd all headed down to Breen. And this is the first time we'd probably been out in a long time. So there was excitement, but the abuse was still going on. So it was mixed excitement. And on the way back from that, it was a very weird holiday, but on the way back from that, there'd been a large car accident. And um, Eunice's real daughter, and her adopted. Do you want me to do it without names? Yeah, without names, please. Just, yeah. just say my brother or my sister. 
yeah. real real sister or adopted sister. yeah yeah so, so yeah, yeah. Uh, but you can Sorry. use but victoria's name you can use victoria's yeah. name yeah so um so being a large car accident and eunice's real daughter and her adopted daughter died in that car accident no way and victoria my younger brother were trapped in the car so <sighs> there's these little sooty vans we so used they to seen seen the your two they, sisters they, who they died s- it was one of the worst accidents i've how did this how did it happen an accident so there was a traffic jam on the m5 uh near avonmouth bridge and they were in a tiny little people carrier bedford rascal tiny little sooty van mm. and they'd stopped in traffic and the lorry behind was fiddling with his stereo and hit them at 55 miles an hour sandwiched them between Mm. two lorries between two lorries so the car was three and a half feet long no and somehow victoria yeah she she had so many injuries she you know spinal hips brain damage she 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 was in a very bad way my my younger brother was actually in a child seat uh, a booster seat and the seat saved his life uh, he had broken legs but he was fine from that but you know victoria sat with her adopted sister's head in her lap you know it was i can't imagine that i can't imagine that we didn't know any of this had happened of course we were when did you find out it this was before mobile phones were a big thing but we carried on driving home we knew there's a big traffic jam so we drove home and we started ringing their the one mobile phone they had and no answer no answer and next thing we know a uh a marked police cars arrived at the house and they i don't think they told Eunice straight away but um you know, she was taken away to French A um, hospital where my brother and Victoria were in a very bad way. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know at this point. All we knew is there'd been a big car accident. We half expected them to all be okay. Um, the fact that she'd gone to hospital, that must mean, you know, they're okay. And it was the next day we were driven up to the hospital and. Eunice took us into a side room, myself and my blood sibling. And very matter of fact, they very coldly said, you know, they're dead. And then very coldly just looked us straight in the eye and said, I wish it was you. What? Because I I was meant to be where her adopted daughter was. I'd swapped at the last moment because I was well, I was good with um, her grandparents wearing wheelchairs and I was good with the wheelchairs so I'd swapped literally 10 minutes before or it would have been me in the car well, oh my so, god so what was going through your head then when that was said to you well it was mixed because one you've just been told while those siblings were never abused they were still our siblings you know and you've just been told they're dead and it it was tragic it's and then to just have that coldly said at the end was matter of fact. It was just yeah. it was brutal. And then she walked out and left us to it. <sighs> so I got to see my brother who was in a horrific way, and then I went down to see 
Victoria, who had had you know five surgeries that night just to try and save her life, and a cage around her, and it was it was horrific. I've never seen anything like that. <sighs> Eunice didn't want to walk us into that, so she just let us go on our own. And I remember the nurses like looking around, like, "Where's where's your mum?" But yeah, it, it was pretty bad. And then within this, of course, she was denied blood. Go on, so, ex- could you explain that then? Why that would happen? So Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in, believe in blood transfusions. And I caught a conversation when I was in one of the corridors of a doctor on the phone saying, she doesn't have blood, she will die. And them talking to their legal teams, you know, as they do. And then the Jehovah's Witness, um, what do they call them? Hospital Liaison Committee. Thank you. Came down and they basically support the victim and stopping a doctor's meddling in their affairs so um she actually did have blood in the end uh they overrode it i don't know how i don't know legally what they did um but she went into surgery for the sixth time and within two days and they gave her blood and i remember eunice being so angry like so angry that her for what i don't think she actually cared about the blood thing it was more her decision had been overturned and she considered Victoria unclean at that point. So all this, you know, happening while we're grieving the loss of our two siblings and to hear your sister who's literally led there near death being called unclean. It's just, it's vile. Heartless. Yeah. Could you explain a bit more about the blood thing, John? Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses um, base, well, all of their beliefs on the Bible or their interpretation of the Bible. And the one with regard to blood, um, they take very seriously, mostly in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures that has to do with bleeding animals before you can eat them to make sure that the, the blood is drained out because the life force is in the blood. That represents the life force, the blood. So once the life force or the blood is out then the bible says you can eat the animal and so that sort of uh, extrapolated them back into the to to humans that life blood is life or life is blood so it's sacred and shouldn't be used for any other purpose even even for what might be seemingly saving lives so jehovah's witnesses don't accept blood um they do accept minor fractions of blood. And over the years, they've changed their view of things like um, organ transplantation and stuff like that. Whereas in the past, it's been a no uh, and blood has been no. Um, now it's just that the four main components of blood, you've got the red cells, white cells, platelets and plasma. They are a no-go area. But if scientists can break down blood into other things like factor eight or... um some of those other clotting factors, they're a matter of conscience. But um, it sounds like, yeah, that they call it a matter of conscience. So every individual Jehovah's Witness can decide. But I must say that in um, in what you're describing with Victoria's terrible injuries, obviously in that case, 
They can't they, get it over. They just wanted to put some volume of blood inside her so that she doesn't just bleed to death. She'd lost half, I think. Don't quote me, but I think they said she'd lost half her blood at one point. And so how does a doctor go about getting this overturned? I think they just did it, they just to be it. honest. Right. Um, I think they used the fact that she was adopted and not um, Eunice's blood child. They did something around that and they just did it. Mm. Mm. Um, they will. Um, the courts in this day and age, the courts would never allow a child to die. No. Mm-mm. So however much the Jehovah's Witness or the parents will protest that they don't want their child to have blood, it ne- nearly always goes straight up, even emergency to the court the family court and they'll have a quick discussion over the telephone they have what they call either an inter-parties like a one one to one with the doctors or they'll get the parents involved and over the phone the parents will put their case to the judge the doctors will put their case to the judge and the judge will decide and it's nearly always right well the doctor says it's needed so i think fortunately in this country a child would never be left to die unless they're sort of 15 16 or 17 where it's complicated where they may be considered to have capacity and that's where there may be a question mark but in the situation that um, chris has described the the judge would have just said give the child she's getting us yeah but but isn't the situations whereby all of that to in and fro in with both parties and the judge the child could have died already. Mm. It's happened. It's happened. It's happened. Yeah, there is there is a provision whereby if two consultants agree, um, basically they can give blood. Yeah. If a consultant gets a second opinion from another consultant, that normally would make sure they're safe and they wouldn't get um, sued. But the real the reason why they go to a judge is because a doctor can get sued, but you can't sue a judge. No. And if the judge says give the child blood, then the the hospital are off the hook. Mm. I think it's more of a problem in America where legal, I don't know, you'll know more about this, but it can become ridiculous, the legal um, almost bridges that the Jehovah's Witnesses can put in, the liaison teams and things. And there are stories of kids dying. There are stories of, so many stories of adults dying for not being able to get a transfusion. So you know people in comas and stuff and people have blocked the transfusion on their behalf it's like i don't get that bit Mm. going back to the accident then who was driving that vehicle so eunice's real daughter was driving the vehicle and she died instantly how old was she um i want to say early 30s um but she died instantly um her adoptive Eunice's adoptive daughter died instantly as well. So there's, uh, you know, I still can't, you know, they were air ambulanced out. You've got to thank the air ambulance for really being only three or four minutes away. They, sh- Victoria shouldn't have survived that. Mm. You know, the odds would have been you know, 10% if that. Um, I don't know how she survived. You know, my, as I said, my brother was in a, a chair that had basically became a little crash suit for him and he just walked away with a fractured elbow and some quite bad leg injuries but he yeah so two people died yeah two out of the four died two survived yeah but were very injured yeah what was the it like in the house in the aftermath of the accident 
so Eunice stayed. So after we'd gone down to the hospital, uh, we went to actually stay with some Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, an elderly couple had offered to um, put us up, and they they were amazing. They're very strict for their religion, but I don't think they had any idea what Eunice had done before or um i think it would have been a very different story but you know eunice probably to this day still blames us for that accident you know um we should have been the ones who died and she let that be known when she finally returned home you know i think it was god it's nearly nine weeks before they came home they've been in hospital for a long time so and she stayed up there. She stayed up there the whole right, time, okay. yeah. So for us, it was a bit like holiday, no abuse. And you know, don't get me wrong, it was tragic. Yeah. But at the same time, it's that first taste of normality we'd and had in a long time. having the space to grieve properly without yeah. Eunice's yeah. behavior. But all you want at that point when you're grieving is your mum. All you want is some love, some affection. And she'd put the shutters up and we were not going to get that. And I don't think, you know, either me or my siblings have ever got over that crash. It's still, I drive, I've, on my way to work, I have to drive past that road quite often. And um, Eunice had some trees planted uh, where the crash happened. There's two big silver birches and they've grown up right next to the motorway. And you can just see them a mile away. And it's really hard to drive, you know, to drive past it one knowing my siblings died and two actually because that message plays in your head every time it's your fault you know and it still still affects me now have you had counseling over any of this so i've 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 got issues with counseling not just me personally i've got no issue you know with recommending counseling to anyone else but i always feel like i'm being attacked so I find it very hard to even approach counselling. Um, more recently, very recently, actually, the last six weeks, I've been starting a, a course to try and understand some of the triggers. You know, I've got weird little triggers that set me off, uh, set off my PTSD. The smell of air conditioning when you first turn the aircon on in the car. The um, smell of washing up liquid. Um baby's crying it's, it's a it's a really wow it's a really weird one but it's all i heard as a kid was crying and it still triggers me now so i've been doing some therapy around that and i've I found it helpful actually good but it's taken me best part of you know 10 11 12 years to actually be ready to do that when she got back from the hospital what was her behavior like cold cold she she barely acknowledged our existence most of the time um the physical abuse had basically stopped at that point for a while anyway it, it came back but with the usual weapons and stuff yes but more calculated and a lot more surprised um, um did you get attacked while you were trying to sleep <sighs> So, very rarely, because we were never in the farmhouse. So, I, I, I'd sleep in the field most of the time. Or in, Slept in a field? 
Yes, yeah, so, good weather, he said. In, in good <laughs> weather, so with your dog. See, so that may sound mad to you, but those are some of my happiest memories as a kid. Um, I tried to paint it once, waking up and uh, in the cornfield and having deer at the end of your feet, and they were just investigating you, like wide-eyed, like what the hell is he doing here? Um, and just the yeah, you know, sleeping there in a field with a blanket and your dog. You did, did you feel safe with your dog in the blanket? Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. A lot safer than being around the house. Mm. Um, in the winter, we had the static home, the mobile home, and um, but even then, I, 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 I'd have rather been in the field because at least I was in control. It was probably the only one bit of control I had. Did your siblings come out into the field as well and sleep? Uh, no, I was the only one crazy enough to do that. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> got told that a few times. Um, apparently, waking up with slugs and things is not is not what they wanted. Um, it's good protein, um, but yeah. You know, jokes aside, I just wanted to be as far away from units as possible, and that's how it came in the later years. I would try and avoid her like the plague because. I knew it was wrong. At this point, I'd worked out it was wrong. I didn't know how to deal with it. The only thought in my head was violence to deal with it, and that didn't sit right with me even back then. So it was better to avoid it, and she noticed that, hence the surprise attacks. You know, and Could you give us an example of a surprise attack after the hospital? Um, so we'd been stripping lots of flooring out of the farmhouse, and there were these small planks of wood with nails in. And she would quite often whip that across the bat and you'd get, I called it staggered. You'd get little puncture wounds all on your back. I've still got those now. Um, and the one time she whipped it across the front of my knee and it punctured it. Punctured? Punctured the actual kneecap. So I went to pull out the wood and it, it wouldn't. Oh my God. And yeah, I'm feeling sick thinking about that. Um, hmm. it didn't really hurt. That's the crazy thing. It stung, but was it the ad- adrenaline? Uh, adrenaline had kicked in. Oh my god! And then having to wind it round to try and pull it out. Oh, was, sorry. Ooh, <laughs> 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 was Man. interesting. But and, and most of these things that happen, you know, we 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 had broken arms. We know that we had broken hands. She would beat hands quite regularly. We, I think, I can count on the amount. Of on my hand the amount of times we actually went to hospital when things had gone badly wrong when was the first time you went to hospital Uh, so first time was she knocked me out and i had a cut across my eye and she panicked about that um so we went to hospital i'd had a bike accident was Mm. the excuse um i really was quite clumsy on that bike (laughs) (laughs) if you check my records um did you even own a bike? No. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that's, that's the ironic thing. No. Um, that's a luxury we didn't own. Um, but, yeah, whenever we went to hospital, there was always an excuse. And um, I think the second time was when I think I'd been led down. This probably actually one of the only times she'd actually properly attacked me while sleeping. I'd been led down and she stood on my elbow and it was just, while it was arched and it went the wrong way and yeah i don't know what happened but I, she rushed me to hospital i remember having gas and air for the first time and loving that um still love gas and air. <laughs> <laughs> um was that put down to what 
Like the hospital. Uh, oh, the dog. The dog. Dog had. I was playing rough with the dog. So it was a big dog, but Jesus. And you didn't have any teeth marks? No. Mm, funny no, that. Yeah. I think. Were they getting suspicious at the hospital at this point? The thing is, she was clever. She went to different hospitals. Mm. So she'd go to Chooksbury Hospital, she'd go to Pershaw Hospital, she'd go to Worcester Hospital. And these were all quite big drives from each other, but she, she knew what she was doing. Rotating hospitals. Yeah, and we didn't have any set medical records. So we lived under assumed names. Uh, so we didn't. I didn't learn my real name until I was 16, 17 years old. Um, so we had these... What was your what, fake name? I can't go to that. You can't, no. can't go to that. But technically, wow, yeah. Um, so yeah, we had these fake names almost that she'd made up, and um, just to cover her tracks, really. And then she might have been claiming finances with that as well. We we don't know, but um, yeah, we. So I guess that was why none of the medical records quite added up, and no one was tracking it well enough. Uh, the education thing was the weird one for me um, out of all this. So we were home taught and once a year we'd have an inspector come to view our education and they got sh- <laughs> they got shown the same work about five years in a row. Eunice literally left it uh, on these like placards and stuff and they got shown the same <laughs> work five years in a row. I didn't suspect a thing. Not a thing was well. suspected. I, I read in the Sears case review that you know the education had visited and everything was fine. You got shown the same work. <laughs> <laughs> didn't that trigger anything? And we weren't there for three years. <laughs> three of the five years we didn't even... We were apparently on a field trip. Oh. So, yeah, there's so many opportunities that this could have been caught. So earlier on, you said that... You know, as a three or four year old going to a Jehovah's Witness household, you just wanted to play with your toys, you weren't paying any attention. But now, 10 years later, what does it mean to you at that age? Are you now steeped in this religion? Is she like giving you classes on this? Do you have to go to attend any services there? So, or? Uh, so later on, especially around the car accident, we were attending every service. Right. How often is that? Um, so th- in Chooksbury, I don't know about your local one, but it was Thursday nights and Sundays. And what is the service? Um, so I only mainly went to the Sunday ones, but that would um, start. You'll probably know so more, it, but well, it's, it's a one hour. Yeah, su- Sunday was the first thing was what we called a public talk where members of the public were invited to it, although mostly it was the congregation. And then that was followed quickly by a study of the Watchtower magazine where that would be a question and answer and someone would be on the stage and the paragraphs would be read individually and then questions would be asked and members of the congregation could put their hand up and you'd call and say, Brother Viney, and you'd give your little testament and that went through. So that was a Sunday of the public talk for 45 minutes where someone gave a talk. Yeah. And then on the Thursday, we called it the ministry school. Yeah. And that was where members of the congregation had volunteered to give little five-minute or ten-minute presentations. They were all assigned. And then the second meeting on the Thursday was what they called the service meeting, where um, it was how to prepare for going door-to-door knocking, what to say. So those those were the two main – or the four main meetings at the Kingdom Hall. 
And at some point, they used to do um, a book study or a group study on a Tuesday in the hour. That's it, yeah. We never so did that. It was just a one-hour uh, one study in someone's home. Um, and that went on for years and years. She didn't like people coming to the home. No. But, um, it was weird because um, the... Um, it was the second half was the question and with the watch yes, the watchtower the second yeah. half of the so Sunday. Eunice would write these really elaborate answers in red pen and um we'd have to put our hands up and read this elaborate answer that w we had no idea um but it would be like a, a 30 second answer whereas most people are just doing a, literally five seconds they'd answer it and that's it and you'd all put your hands up and this poor bloke would run around with the microphone um <laughs> So, and you'd have to say these really elaborate that long... we had no idea about. Yeah, right. um, yeah, we we'd stop paying attention to be perfectly honest to what Eunice was teaching us about the Watchtower, um, because we came to the conclusion quite quickly that she wasn't actually following it herself. <laughs> so why should we? But she always made this public show of it. So she wanted to be, yeah. Nice big car, the show off children. She'd helped look at these five children I've dragged in with me. I've helped them all. Dressed to the nines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In wackiest. Yeah. I will show you later. It was, it's yes, weird. Please do. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the Von Trapp children. <laughs> yeah. It literally was. <laughs> it Dressed in was. curtains. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just take a quick sip of yeah, this? Yeah, go for it. Go for it, absolutely. Just do it next to the sound, just for, just for you there. So. Um, <laughs> So when you are attending these services then, do you have any interest in what's being said? Are you like getting engaged or is it, is it a, a way to get out of the house? How are you viewing it as, as a teenager? So for us, it was quite exciting because we were leaving the house. But within minutes, I was bored. Yeah. Um, that 45-minute talk um, quite often went over as well. Um, it was... It was always by a local elder or something, and it was very lengthy. And they could be—I've <laughs> got ADHD, so I struggle to, you know, I struggle to drive. Sometimes I get disinterested. So sitting in a room perfectly quiet, you can't make a noise, you can't talk to your siblings next to you. You know, it's it's quite strict. And yeah, I was very bored. I'm not we were lie. saying about the youth today with their attention mm. span on TikTok. Mm. TikTok. <laughs> I think at the meetings, um, to be fair, were particularly boring. If you were a kid, yeah, to sit for two hours. Mm. And um, in those days as well, some capital punishment was given. So you'd, you'd get a slap. So you'd often hear kids being taken out. No, no, don't, no, no. Yeah, and, and out the back yeah. you'd hear it. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, and then, and then they'd come back in. Mm, just <laughs> silence. <laughs> yeah. So as you're getting into your mid-teens, hormones kicking in, are you thinking that, you know, want to go out meet a girlfriend, anything like that, meet a partner? So that that hadn't really come on. Mm. Um, it did later on, believe me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I made it for lost time. But it didn't really come on. We were so controlled and so manipulated that we didn't we had very little free thought not until the very last few months of being under her control did you have internet access no tv no 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 form no of games consoles no so my younger brother did he had 
so my younger brother was never abused and he won't mind me talking about it um uh, we had a conversation with me on the way up um and we were laughing about it at the time but actually when you think about it it's bloody ridiculous <laughs> but he was had from birth so, so this was a birth kid yeah the, well it was my blood brother but he was had he was adopted from, from birth oh gotcha this was the brother who came about yeah. later on so um he was never smart never abused was given everything uh she bought him like a vw beetle when he was eight years old just to drive around the farm and he couldn't even reach the pedals uh, i drove it there that's good um but you know never abused lived in the top of the farmhouse in like this little palace um very different lives and of course that caused a lot of jealousy issues where i i quite often thought i was going to kill him and maybe then i'd become the most liked one um but yeah, i can't remember where i was going with that sorry why do you think she did not abuse him so i can only think really that she had him from birth that is the only difference between him and, and so she and didn't I. have to break him yeah all right and but also he he's got his own abuse story to tell out of all this because he was bait he was almost kept like a baby you know when we first came into care modern care he couldn't tie his shoelaces you know eunice was still wiping his butt yeah he old uh so i came 16 so he'd have been 12 cool so wiping his bum at 12 yeah can't tie his shoelaces wipe his own ass nothing so while he'd had everything he had no life skills at all and also you know it's been harder for him because he he has got a story but he hasn't got a story if that makes sense he hasn't got all this abuse we were the ones in the papers we were the ones um you know who almost had fame out of this if you want to call it that so for him i you know i actually think in many ways he's had the worst abuse because he's had to relearn how to live you know i came out of eunice's care got a job be it manual laboring at first but i had a work ethic i had i knew about you know waking up going and working because that's all we did on the farm that's all we did so in many ways she damaged him so much versus us you know ours was all physical he has this mental battle now can even I, now can i ask what he does for a living now so he he's faced addiction issues for years so he's had various little jobs and then failed due to um you know alcoholism and things and he's just recently started to rebuild his life you know he's he's sorted himself out of flat he's uh accepting counseling he's um uh you know going to alcohol aa groups and things so he's just starting to and we've yeah, you know, I've worked with him for years. He, he'll always be my little bro. He, you know, every journey I make, I spend an hour on the phone talking to him while driving between places with work. So he's always going to be my little bro. But actually, he came out of this really damaged. Yeah. When these things are happening to you, the horrific things, was he present? Did he see them? I think he did see some things. Um, I th- Yeah, he must have seen things. But we made the decision very early on if we were going to cooperate the police that they leave him alone. 
and that was you know said to the police officers very early on um but that's a whole different story that's a weird one how old were you when you made that decision so the arrest happened when i was 16 the um, rest of Eunice. yes um how did that come about then so vic victoria had been getting more and more unwell physically mentally will she have permanent damage from the accident as well this is where it gets very weird so let's let's go back a bit okay um and this is where it gets so messed up and this is where i struggle anger wise with it all so victoria had a really bad injuries broken hips legs spine twice um um she shouldn't have been alive you know internal injuries you know she lost her stomach she lost yeah she so was she on the colostomy and all that yeah good grief she she went through hell but she she was a fighter and and the team at franchet hospital at the time were incredible they rebuilt her and eunice spotted an opportunity for money and as victoria started to do physio to learn to work to walk Eunice at that point decided that Victoria shouldn't walk. No. And so pulled her out of physio. And of course, with all sitting there for nearly a year in hospital on and off, she couldn't, she had no muscle in her legs. So physically she couldn't walk. But medically there was no reason why she shouldn't walk. Or at um, least work towards it, yeah. Yeah, Eunice wouldn't ever allow that. And any time a doctor suggested, you know, physio, she'd move doctors. Because in the background, she was claiming this super compensation case, uh, basically paralyzed daughter. Um, and Victoria didn't know this was kind of happening for most of this. She just thought she couldn't walk. But the whole time, it was a calculated game by Eunice to make millions. Did she? It nearly worked. Nearly. The compensation was due not far after the arrests were made. <sighs> but that's where it gets weird f for me. So the arrests were made. Um, I'm, I'd been living with Eunice's parents who were elderly Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, it's quite a physical lad, so I could help them. He was in a wheelchair, bad Parkinson's arthritis. So I was living with her grandparents for about six months. And the abuse had stopped, mostly. Um, next thing I know, police knocking the door. We've arrested your mum. Um, I'd only just got out of bed, so I closed the door and went back to bed. <laughs> Literally. I, I did. <laughs> you can't wake me up in the morning. It's not good. You're not a morning person. So at that point, the door went in. <laughs> they came in after me. Right. And I was carted out. Uh, they always sent the dog man as well. I've never quite forgiven them for that <laughs> what the sniffer dogs yeah the police dog oh, right. i'm good friends with the officer now who who <laughs> who went through my door with the police dog and like thanks guys um i don't know what they thought they were going to face like <laughs> well <laughs> i think they were expecting quite damaged children mm. um so we were taken straight away to tesco's because i had no clothes i had one pair of jeans and one t-shirt and that was it and and a set of pajamas, so we were taken away straight to Tesco's and bought our first clothes in donkey's years. Uh, so this was me and my little brother. I hadn't seen him in a year because Eunice didn't want me talking to him. So suddenly we're in a car together, and I'm like, hey, how are you? <laughs> like, 
And then we're taken to the police station straight away. We've got clothes, sandwich, police station. Where our training started kicking in. Eunice had always taught us, if the police come, this is what you're going to say. So scariest police officer ever, Victoria Martel, if you're watching this. Um, uh, she's well mentioned within all this. Um, she's questioning us, you know, was Eunice a good mum? Yeah, she was lovely. Do you ever get smacked? Oh, once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> While they're sitting there with my arm in plaster and stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we we just we fed them the line we'd been taught for years um but what i didn't know was they really needed me to talk quickly mm. because there was lots of court stuff going on in the background protection orders stuff like that so they decided to take me to the hospital to see victoria who had just had surgery now i hadn't seen victoria in a year same as my brother and as i enter her room i'm quite excited to see her um as i enter the room she gets off the bed and walks to me and at that point my whole world just changed because i realized you know the links had been made everything i'd been told was a lie oh ticked yeah wow. and she literally walked to me and i had to run i couldn't deal with it i literally ran and through cheltenham hospital and I ended up just singing a random corridor, crying my eyes out. What was going through your head? It was over. Uh, so just many mixed feelings. Was that the moment you knew you were going to speak? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but also fear of speaking. And uh, just so many mixed emotions. And also that the whole, my whole life of being a lie at that point. Literally. Yeah, if you are willing to lie about someone being able to walk, yeah, that's a fundamental right to be able to walk, isn't it? Um, what else have you been doing to us over these years? So at that point, I agreed to talk to the police, and they took me back to the station the same day, and I started the started this process. Did you decide to tell them everything, or did you just play it like? I didn't want- tell them everything. And and there was stuff I felt embarrassed about, and there was some sexual stuff as well, which I never fully went into. Not for many years later. Um, also, I, I felt weak for not having fought back because straight away one of the police officers said, "Oh, why didn't you push her or something?" And I had no question, I had no answer to give him. You know, why didn't I push her? Why didn't I? defend myself well that's because she had us that controlled it's like you know you you see these people who can go around the lions and the tigers but they had them when they were little babies didn't they yeah and then they've got they're conditioned aren't they from that age to have this kind of you know show a certain fear and respect is that is that something it's, it's would you, much yeah like that. Yeah, yeah you've decided to tell the police everything now but you're going to withhold some things how are you deciding what to tell them and what not to tell them it's it's hard because some of the stuff was embarrassing you know i i hadn't really learned about sexuality and stuff and you know there was sexual abuse i didn't want to talk to them about that at all um and they were very keen of course to know all these things and 
without sounding horrible, they were putting a lot of pressure on. Um, and, you know, they'd come to my work where I was working at the time. Uh, I'd get a tannoy announcement. There's a police officer here to see you. And it, it got very intense because um, they knew there was more to it than just me saying, actually, I got smacked a few times. Um, but, yeah, I found it very embarrassing that I'd never fought back or I'd never, you know, God, yeah, why didn't I just run down the road and go to the post office and call for help? Yeah, because you, you're conditioned from three years old. But but all these <laughs> there is that. Mm. But all these questions are going through your head because the way they question you. Yes, they were using kid gloves, but the way they question you. Oh, so did you ever think of doing this? And you're like, shit, I didn't. Like, sorry, that's all. You're fine. Um, and I think you're like, well, no, I didn't. Um, I I felt really embarrassed. And I felt I'd failed my siblings by not helping them, even though actually we helped each other daily. You know, we were all trained nurses by the end of our childhood. The way we could, you know, strap up a broken hand or something, we we were brilliant at it. Um, so yeah, I felt like a failure, and at that time, I just wanted to withdraw from, yeah, withdraw from the whole court case. As you were telling them things, were the police pulling the hospital records? So I, I guess this was happening, yeah. Um, I know they came across some records, not all the records they ever found. And it, it's weird because when I look back at my medical records now, they kind of start when I was 18. I have nothing before then, no dental, nothing like that. So it's it's weird. Um basically we ceased to exist on this earth before then in the eyes of social services and the law so was there a sense of relief and release perhaps to be telling somebody about what had happened finally yes and no it felt good to get it off my chest but at the same time they're prepping you to go to court and also i was under a lot of pressure to um to drop my uh case um pressure you know, from who well eunice actually came to my work at one point so was she arrested and bailed out yes yeah, she, she was arrested and bailed out and uh we were in modern foster care as i call it and she would send letters that had to be vetted you know saying i love you you know You'll always be our special little children. And she'd sent some PlayStations. And uh, I think I don't, we only saw a little bit. I think social services and the police kept a lot back. So, to, you know, to keep our minds uncluttered, ready for court. Um, and of course, while you're going through all this, your mental health's all over the place. But back then it was kind of the normal not to offer kids mental health services while they're going through a court case. Um, because it could cloud their judgment later on in court, or you might forgive them even. So, yeah, it, it was it was complicated. Were your siblings talking to the police as well? Yes. So, yeah, you know, we kind of made the off-record arrangement with the police that we would talk or tell some stuff if they left my younger brother alone, because he wouldn't have survived it. Um, so we came to that arrangement quite quickly, and we all. I don't think we all told the whole story. I don't think any of us, 
there was always something we were embarrassed about. I remember being questioned actually when it went to court. There was some stuff I just froze. I couldn't talk about it. Um, you know, drowning. Drowning is um we were drowned a few times as a kid and what was the infraction that caused her to want to drown you? And how did she drown you? So the one the first time was in a bath. So she'd she, we need to wash you to get the uncleanness off you. So strip naked, bath, and then she'd hold us down neck first. And you're literally gripping the, her hand, trying to get back up. So first time she did that, I, I I blacked out. Jesus. And she had to, like, was doing compressions and stuff to get me back. And the uncleanness was to do with the religious belief? I guess so. I guess so. Um, whether she actually believed that, I don't know. So anything to do with the drowning, you know, there's a time we owned a small boat. She hit me across the back of the head while we were on the boat. I fell in. Um, I don't know how I got out. I still have no idea how I got out. Um, all I know is I came around on the boat five or six hours later. Um, yeah, just anything like that I couldn't talk about in court. Um, and I could see the prosecutors you know, trying to avoid it so so that I didn't freeze, but it's the defence isn't so kind. Before court, how were you adapting to foster care? I, I feel bad for our foster carers because it was probably quite hard work. One, I was hyper as hell. And two, I didn't want to be loved. I didn't really want to be cared for. If they could put me in a flat on my own, I'd have been happy. Um, of course, they didn't. And we were moved quite a lot for um, protection reasons. So... What's protection reasons mean? So initially, I was asked to um, um, withdraw my statements by Eunice. She came to my work. I think she was warned off at that point by the police that that's witness tampering. Uh, the next thing, I was assaulted. We don't know quite by who, but I had the... Had the crap beaten out of me outside my work. So you you're just coming out of work at the end of the day. Next thing I know, punched in the stomach by a man or then, a woman. If you're uh, a couple of men, a couple of men. Okay. And um, I walked away with that with a broken arm. Did they say anything to you? Just withdraw your statement now. So. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, John, do you think that's linked to her connections then in the church, or is that just speculation? I, I've got to be honest and say no. I, okay. I mean, there's there's a lot wrong with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'll be the first to say that. But you know, uh, no, that that wouldn't be. That would, I would imagine, she's paid someone off to. Um, I, I to think she had him. quite a lot of Irish family as well who um, didn't believe. Or well, I know this to be a fact. They didn't believe us at first they hadn't heard any evidence of course but to them their darling Eunice is being accused of all these horrific things you know by these kids she's saved why would they do that you're we'll setting go, her up we're gonna help her um um you know I walked away with a broken arm there and a broken elbow do they use weapons uh I think one had a piece of wood to be honest it's a bit of a blur that's but a bloody I, I, theme <laughs> <laughs> I, I went, yeah, sticks. <laughs> Gotta love a chair leg. Um, but yeah, I didn't report that either. 
I just wanted it to go away. And it was when I came home from um, a, one of my work colleagues took me to hospital straight away because I couldn't use my arm properly. <sighs> I got home to the foster home and I thought, what the heck has happened? You know, um, arms in a cast, properly strapped up, ready for surgery. Um, and I said, oh, nothing, just an accident at work. They called the police. At this point, I'd gone to a friend's house and then they had the whole police force looking out for me because they needed to know what happened. It was a couple of days before I actually told them what happened. So you've got the instability then of getting moved around foster homes. You've got security issues. You said earlier that you hadn't seen your brother for a year or so. Yeah. Was it nice in these, in these foster homes where you're all together? It was blooming awful. It was awful. What? <laughs> <laughs> we are awful to each other. It was awful. Uh, so he, he's amazing, but we wind each other up so much. <laughs> and we're, each other's and we were always in a bedroom together because they thought, oh, brothers, they'd love each other. <laughs> so it, that, that, that didn't last. Oh, um, the one day he threw Worcestershire sauce in my eyes. Particular. And yeah, very particular and very acidy as well. And I picked him up and chucked him through a fridge door. So we had, a, and poor foster care was like, okay. <laughs> so we, we had a love-hate relationship, but actually it, it's exactly what we needed. We needed actually some brotherly interaction. Bonding this, time, yeah. And the, the, slightly less than throwing acid in each other's eyes and stuff, but this is what brothers do. And we'd never had that because he was bubble-wrapped and protected and we never barely got to see him as kids, so... Apart from Victoria. Victoria was his, basically his nanny. What was her situation medically at this point pre-court? So she was going through continuous surgeries. Um, you know, in, in those early years, she lived in hospital. You know, um, I was going to say Facebook. It wasn't Facebook then. It was MySpace. We're going back. Mm. We're going back. Bebo and MySpace. <laughs> um but she would always update uh, in Cheltenham General um, again. And it, it was quite sad because we just came to expect it. That's, that's tragic in many ways. And like in 2019, I spent a lot of time in hospital, ironically on the same ward that Victoria had been on. And all the nurses had so many stories of how um, they used to look after and, um, you know, a lot of them felt horrific for her because she was a very unwell girl, even towards, you know, even though she'd escaped Eunice, you know, mentally and physically, she was struggling. By the time it got to court, what charges was Eunice facing? Oh, God, I, I can't actually remember the full list. It's over 14, 14 15 charges. Mm. But neglect, child abuse, um, grievous bodily harm, things like that. Um I think out of the 14, you'd have to check me on this, but I think she got sentenced to 13 of them. So, and then sentenced to 14 years, which at the time was, I believe, the largest sentence for a non-death child abuse case. And actually more than Baby P did, Baby P's killers or anything like that. How so, long How long was the trial? Uh, six weeks. Well, how did that feel? I was contemplating running away. It's a theme here. I, I, I mm. like running a lot. Well, not not much. <laughs> but I was contemplating running away the whole time. I didn't want to see her. 
And I know they said they'd put up this little curtain or we could do video link and we'd be taken in in blacked out cars. And I didn't want to have to face. For one, I didn't want anyone to question whether it was true or not. Um, That may sound really ridiculous, you know, and we yeah, were covered in scars. We had co- we didn't even get inspected by a doctor. We got inspected by a coroner. I was taken to the Cheltenham coroner office by the police who did a coroner's inspection on me rather than a police, like a doctor's inspection. That was the amount of scars and the depth and wounds. Um, So they had the evidence and I knew that. But still in my head, I'm like, well, what happens if she wins? She's won everything else in life. You know, maybe I should just run. The police made it very hard to run. (laughs) There was a small Hell. package put behind me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I think I was monitored slightly. Um, but that this is where it gets even weirder. My day in court didn't happen as it was meant to. So getting a blacked out Mercedes, 7am, driven to the court, um, presser out on the road, photography, going crazy. And then... You're put in this little witness room, you know, there's, ironically, it's a kid's witness room with a teddy bear. And I was 16, nearly 18 at this point. <laughs> the last thing I need is a teddy bear. Um, a coffee would have been good. Mm. But 11 o'clock, due to go in. There's been a slight delay. Okay. 12 o'clock. Can you go to lunch? We'll be back afterwards. Three o'clock. There's been a delay. What I hadn't realised is Eunice's dad had died that that morning and this is the granddad that I'd looked after for a year and he was kind of my best friend. He was he was amazing chap, a very strict Jehovah's Witnessing elder, but a really nice chap. Did he have any idea of the abuse going on? Or? He knew she was strict, but there's no way he would have stood up, yeah. stood by her if he'd known. Um and yeah, he'd passed that morning. And then, of course, Eunice was allowed to. Um, so there was a week's break for that. And then I was called in again. Do you think her arrest did him in? Mm. I th- I think so, yeah. He was quite, I won't say healthy, because he was yeah, in a bad way. But he wasn't at death's door before that. But the stress of that. And you know, having your door kicked in. It's, it's not nice is it it's embarrassing for him he was a very proud man and to have your daughter suddenly accused of all these horrific things which he might have known in this you know the back of his head some of it was true so you go back a week later what's it like on the in the court then on that day so roll up at court again 7am Mercedes arrives you get taken to court and try and think do i need to amp myself up do i need to amp myself down I've got prodigy on in the headphones just Are you with your siblings no no we're all on individual days so i had uh my social worker with me at the time and uh, a youth worker who i amazing uh nicknamed spud i won't give his real name but um really top bloke who every time i try to run would just straighten me out and tell me i was being a plank um, but yeah, 
I don't know if you've ever been to a crown. Well, you've been to a crown court. <laughs> oh, I've been to a U.S. state court, Arizona state. It's probably court. slightly bigger than what I was going to. But you go into Bristol Crown Court, and it's quite a modern crown court. But when you open this room, it's like going back to the sixties. And they messed up because Eunice and I walked in at the same time. So she's literally staring at me as I'm walking in. Was she staring? at Oh, cold, cold, cold right down right. the barrel. And and then a little smirk. And that, all that amping up I'd done, the headphones, music, blasting, went out the window and I was a scared little child again. And if if that's what she was trying to achieve, she achieved it because it put me on the butt foot. I can't remember anything I said can't remember anything from that day it's all just a blur i remember getting angry at the questioning at some points like when they wanted me to describe the sexual stuff and i was like actually i don't want to and you're in a crown court so you have to i'm not going to they don't take that very well Mm -mm. but did the judge protect you from that it did eventually it did eventually um he agreed that i could come back on a later day and talk about it and i never got called back in um so i had my day in court i described the abuse as best as i could but at the same time that stare is it's there she's done the damage and yeah that that put me back from weeks literally weeks just that one look it was enough to all that progress i'd made get a job you know get my first motorbike get everything it all just been thrown under the bus and i was a vulnerable little child again so at the end of the day of, uh, you know, you being questioned and telling what had happened, how did it feel when you went back that night to where you were staying? I didn't go home. I sat on a motorway bridge with a can of lager and thought, why? The, why? why? So you sat there alone? Yeah. Was it suicidal? I, I was going to quite happily do it. Right. quite happily do it i'd attempted before with pills and stuff turns out due to the drugs Eunice had overdosed her song as a kid i'm built like a mule i can take the meds uh <laughs> one plus of my childhood um yeah drug overdoses as a kid helped me and probably saved my life but sat on a motorway bridge and my social worker had been out driving for six hours trying to find me all evening on his own time and came and found me and we both shared a lager on a motorway bridge talked it out with a hundred foot drop so what had led to the overdose as a kid so Eunice got us all diagnosed as ADHD and she she so Eunice was obsessed with reading she read Nazi control books. She read Japanese torture books. Um, these were all seized by the police afterwards. Oh my God. Um, we used to have to do pressure positions and stuff. So we'd sit up all night with our backs against the walling, like an invisible chair and stuff until one of us broke. So it's similar to the stair things. And then we'd get to go to bed and that child would get beaten. Um, so she was obsessed with reading and then she came onto this ADHD thing and there's a drug called Ritalin and Italy in the 90s was massive um but when it can be quite a controlling drug it can really 
make you quite calm and manipulate you can manipulate someone on it so she gave us five times the dose daily five times the dose daily for how long for most of my childhood what so organs wrecked like insides pretty wrecked we were overdosed daily holy shit um beating you she's dosing you is there anything else she isn't doing to you (laughs) she tried everything i think um what she didn't realize is ritalin is in in the speed family yeah and when you're overdosed on it that's totally the opposite effect and makes you wild so some of the behavior she was witnessing she thought she was controlling was actually us rebounding we could go three or four days without sleep wow just buzzing off our just absolutely buzzing and how, how was she able to access that much drugs so the nhs the doctor she went to who's a bit dodgy um a fact <laughs> um <laughs> should, I, should i take that back <laughs> allegedly dodgy <laughs> <laughs> so the doctor she went to who she knew very well personally and i think there there might have been something there even he wouldn't diagnose us with ADHD. It's like, they're not ADHD. Um, or they, I think he said we had ADHD, but we didn't need Ritalin. We really didn't need Ritalin. It would be the worst thing for us. So she drove us all to London one day. I remember we all get in this minibus and she's like, day trip to London. We all had a McDonald's breakfast. Never had one of those before. Amazing. Haven't stopped since. <laughs> um, we go to London and we go to this fancy doctor's surgery and i've since looked back at you know it was a proper private clinic and she basically paid to have us diagnosed with adhd and then registered us with multiple doctors mm. so we were getting so you get the, the dosage yeah wow and then stockpiled them this is pure evil isn't it oh, it's, it's conniving isn't it it's, it's yeah. clever i i sit back and think you know I, I can barely some days work out how to use the toaster. Let alone uh, yeah. orchestrate that. <laughs> On a multiple levels, you know, and this is three siblings, all different doctors, all sending prescriptions. Incredible. Um, so, yeah, we were heavily dosed on this stuff. So it probably saved my life later on because actually that amount of pills in me didn't... You had the tolerance. Yeah, tolerance was high. And even now, uh, when I have surgery and things, my anaesthetic tolerances are way higher. Really? And... Uh, I feel sorry for the anaesthetist who sat there putting <laughs> it in. I'm in still awake. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, my tolerances to a lot of meds are, are just so strong now. Even now, you'd think over 10 years that would wear off, but it doesn't seem to have. So, yeah, um, overdose later on, I think it probably saved my life. So when you're on the bridge, what did your... Was it your counsellor? Social worker. What did your social worker... Um, first of all, how did the social worker find you? And and what did he say or she say? <sighs> okay, ready. Very small story, I'll tell. I wanted to get out of the court case. I was trying multiple things. And the one thing I tried was... To, <laughs> I took my foster carer's car for a drive. Without their permission? Without their permission. They'd okay. been teaching me to drive. And then I'm like, <clears throat> I know. Grand Theft Auto, that's what I was playing at the time. I will go and take their car for a drive. And then I felt really guilty because I'm like, I'm driving their car. So I changed the oil, washed it, (laughs) topped up the fluids and parked it back on the drive. 
and they felt so guilty for being angry that they didn't press charges. Mm. Anyway, the meeting about that was quite quite a bad one. They they held a big meeting with all the police and everyone involved, and I decided to not attend. So I went and stood on a bridge and watched traffic. I wasn't suicidal, but my social worker had driven under that bridge, and I waved at him. He waved at me like, "Why are you in the meeting?" Like, like, and he drove to the meeting, and it was the same bridge. And I think two and two must have clicked together a year later. That's where it'll be. How did he broach the conversation with you on the bridge? Uh, he accused me of having a really crappy taste in lager. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? It was, was, it? It, was uh, it was a little uh, Polish um, uh, supermarket on the corner that I'd got. So I think it was Lek, I want to say. Beer. yeah <laughs> i quite liked it so i gave him a can and we both sat there and put the world to rights did it make you laugh when he said that it did and that was it uh it, it won you over. the situation and don't get me wrong i was still hurting but at the same time i just chatting to someone getting that anger out without smashing the place up it's not my scene but i was angry i was hurt i was damaged and just having someone to shout at and have a hug um i'm not a big huggy person but i needed that hug that day did you say it was a six-hour conversation it, we were there till the early mornings yeah the same bridge i was very cold by the end of it but i did, just didn't neither of us wanted to make the move and he drove me home and at this point the police had been searching me for me for hours and stuff he hadn't checked his phone at all so you said you needed to get this anger out of you. What were the main things that you said to him that enabled you to release that? I can't remember. I can't actually remember what I said. I remember screaming at one point at the road. Um, I'm just drinking this lack. <laughs> I'll need this. But I remember just... Uh, I just wanted to make it all go away. Reset. And I couldn't. You get a headache, take a paracetamol, pain goes away. You break your arm, they put it in a sling, pain goes away. With anything mental or sexual abuse or any abuse like that, there is no cure. You can come to terms with it. You can maybe even learn to understand it, but it never goes away. And I think on that bridge was the first time I realised totally powerless in this and actually i've just got to go along for the road uh, go along for the ride and see what happens how were your siblings coping during this period of time because they had their them. day in court didn't they avoided them like the plague okay um we all reminded each other of the abuse and this is where it gets quite tragic with victoria because we avoided each other for years we would have the odd meet up in Tesco car park. Yeah, other brands are available. <laughs> um, but we'd have the odd meeting. You know, just we'd see each other. We lived in the same area. And we're, oh, how are you? Blah, blah. We should do coffee. Knowing damn well both of us would never do coffee with each other. Because all we could see was every time I saw Victoria, I could see her crying face when we were having those sticks on our feet for the mm. first time. And it's very hard to put that to the back of your mind. Took you right back to the beginning, basically. Did you think that she was going to beat the case? 
Did she have like fancy she, lawyers and stuff? She had fancy. She lawyered up. She lawyered up. Um, the police kind of offered her a. Can I just very quickly check this? Sorry. Yeah. I'm getting messages. Go for it. No worries. Okay. See anything about those Apple Watches? I find <laughs> pings on your arm there. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I can't remember what the line was. Say the question again. So I said about, you know, did you think that she was going to beat the case with fancy lawyers? So she she definitely lawyered up. Um, and the police almost offered her... The police were so shocked about how this could happen with very little mental health reference. So they actually... You know, normally it's the defence would hire a a shrink to go around and see if you know if if she's got mental health issues. The police actually did it. The police actually decided there's got to be something wrong with her. She came out totally clean. Whoa, totally clean. And that and this was you know non-biased because the police were paying for it. So actually, it's kind of working against them if they're after a prosecution. Totally clean. Totally had full capacity. No, you know, bipolar, nothing like that. So, yeah, she lawyered up. And to be honest, if I hadn't seen the, like, the coroner's report and stuff, I would have maybe thought maybe she was really good with words. Really good with words. Yeah, and she always said she'd be a barrister. And I could believe it. She was amazing at manipulating the little thought processes. Um, So part of me thought actually if she gets to talk to the jury there's a chance she might walk away with this but then the evidence comes up you know they stuck cameras down our throat um to get photos of like the scarring in our throat and stuff you can't fake that can you no. yeah that's not a kid rolling off a bike again hmm. um so when i started read that evidence i read the pat before it went out to the court i was like actually she's she's done but when you're face to face with her in court, which I shouldn't have been, that all you know, all that the doubt creeps in. So it's it's like damp; it's just there. Were you present when she got questioned? No. Were you present when she got sentenced? No. So I was actually at work when she got sentenced. And what? How? How did you hear about it? Um. I think so. Yeah. Uh, the police officer in charge, Victoria, phoned me and said, um, do you want me to say that without her name? Her name is literally all over the case, so. Yeah, the, whose name is this? Victoria Martel. She was the head police officer, DC. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's fine, go on. You're happy with her name there? Yeah, keep going, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I got a phone call from Victoria while, uh, Victoria Martel, not Victoria, while sat in the staff room at work. And this was not when she was sentenced. This is when she was told guilty, guilty, guilty. guilty yeah. Um, and they were reading it out as it was happening. And guilty, guilty. I remember just uh, like, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard not to swear, isn't it? When you're talking no, you're fine. Thing. You can swear if you want. I'm okay. a mucker for that. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm I'm sat there listening to all these, you know, guilty, guilty, guilty. I'm like, Jesus, this is like, this is happening. And I remember just looking across, I had a really good friend at work who basically she mothered me a bit. 
and I remember just breaking straight away, tears. Um, and she just came back to me and put, you won. She's like, you won, you beat her. And I'm nearly tearful now. Yeah. Did she protest her innocence until the end then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Still does. Still does. Still does. Well. Yeah. Okay. Um, but we, we beat her. <laughs> it's, it's like, wow. And I think she got, um, uh, not guilty on one charge. Um, just lack of evidence because I wouldn't talk about the sexual stuff. So we beat her. And then I had to finish my shift. <laughs> How long was the shift? <laughs> it's only in the morning. I had the full day. Oh, fuck but like, it slowly crept out around the staff, and then it was on the news, and then it was on the TV, and like people were high fiving me and stuff. And I felt guilty for feeling happy, but yeah, you because know, it's a sad thing. It's you know. So you were conflicted. Yeah, very conflicted, and then. Uh, we were brought in to do like press statements, so we're taken to Waterwells and Gloucester, um, put in front of like cameras and stuff to give our. The police had written down a, a nice little statement we could read out, and um, yeah, it was just a blur. And then the media, the media were get quite pushy. Um, what do you mean by that? So we had the Daily Mirror outside our house within minutes. I was still in foster care at this point. Um, just snapping pictures and stuff. Just so you can find out where you are if you're in foster care. And in, and in protective as well. You yeah. Know. <laughs> someone got paid off. Someone got paid off. I reckon someone at work. Mm. It was hinted at me later on that someone at work had given my address. So, um, yeah, that, that suddenly you, we've, we've been nobodies all our lives and suddenly this is breaking news and yeah, it, it was crazy. Um, how long did that last it lasted about six months to be honest because the police would release more and more information uh, like six weeks after the sentencing they released all the video footage from the house so then walking around the house videoing up the squalor we'd lived in and that sent everything flying and to be honest I I kind of fed into it slightly I went on this morning um, um, which was probably a mistake to be honest they offer you a bit of money they offered a bit of money nice hotel a bentley took me up you know <laughs> nice. I, I was living the dream <laughs> but actually i could have done with someone to tell me go hide in wales oh that's good yeah, yeah just someone hide with me yeah go, <laughs> go hide in the rolling hills of wales <laughs> just something like that i could have um i, I spiraled I spiralled and then wasn't sleeping, free bars, you know, at these hotels and stuff. It, it went, it all went very wrong. Who was hosting that show back then? Sorry? Who was, who interviewed you back then for TV? So that was uh, Philip Schofield and... Holly? No, it was before Holly. Who was it before Holly? Ah. Oh. So I've, I've actually said... Schofield was really short. It's like really short. Is he? 
Oh, come on. Because I've often said Burn. that me and Sean are a shit version of Holly and Phil. <laughs> the crime version. Well, you said not shit, crime. Um, to be fair, you're nearly double the height of Philip. So. Just waiting for him to come out. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, did you feel comfortable? <laughs> did you feel comfortable um, getting interviewed on that? Such a big show. So they didn't, they, I, they agreed to just video from the back, which is a bit weird. I've, I've got a phone of a picture of me sat on the sofas actually with Philip and Fern. And, but yeah, that first, um, interview I did was from the back because I don't know why I thought I could stay anonymous and all this, but it didn't last long. So. And there, there was a general interest in like the local area. Like people wanted to know how this could have happened and stuff. And our identity got leaked very quickly. Um, I remember this was three days after this morning. I went to hospital for another treatment, and one of the porters said, "Oh, I saw you on this morning." I was like, "How do you know it's me?" Like, so you felt like a little celebrity. Well, yes, but at the same time, I was crapping myself like actually if they know it's me then they know my whole life and they know this happened they know this happened and yeah it was it was a good and bad time mm. but then the sentencing happened is that when you call it when you actually get the sentence mm. yeah. yeah yeah um and that caused literally wildfire it was 14 years and it was unheard of you had i think the worst you know I think literally you look back now, baby peace killers did six years in prison and then were released. Were you happy with the outcome? I was. Everyone around me wasn't. Oh, I should have got life for that. Well, that's unrealistic. You'd, not even murderers get life these days. Um, yeah. It, I was quite happy. I was blown away. 14 years. I'd been briefed to ex expect five to six and be happy with that. And then for them to say 14, it, it was unheard of. Well, on this channel, we're campaigning for cases like this to have bigger sentences. And, you know, all these young people in prison for long sentences for drugs and things. It's ridiculous. ridiculous. You've got serious criminals like this who should be, you know, getting bigger sentences. We had another lady on whose dad um, basically bred her to do certain things and kept a diary of it all and rated it. and what Rated her rape. What, what date rape drugs he used. And he, 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 he wrote a letter to the judge mocking the whole process because he knew the judge could only give him so much time. Yeah. Unless, it's, it's, the unless whole the justice meets, system's upside down. It has to... Yeah, I don't know how the judge did this because it was... I believe recent laws had changed so he could go higher. But, yeah, um, the, the whole criteria thing, it has to meet a certain criteria to get a sentence mm. here. You know, I think cases should be looked at individually. Yeah, I, I on the side of all this, uh, I have an open inbox on Facebook, and on average, we have three fifty messages a week from other victims. And I run something called We Are Resilience, which is a little group where they can come in, do their voice, and um, have a chat with us. And if they want to take it further, we can help them with the correct processes to do that if they just want to vent that's great but there was one case um which was in my mind worse than mine i know statistics and all that but a vulnerable young girl horrifically you know abused and he got three years 
He got three years <gasps> and he served nine months. Pisses me off. And this girl is damaged for life. You know, where's where's the justice there? If people are watching this, just like they watched the interview we did with Pure Evil Dad, that video, and you're in the justice system, you, you can make changes or you can talk to people about making changes. This has got to stop because the damage is, you know, for life. And a lot of the victims go into drugs, end up dead, or get into hardcore crime to finance the drugs, and the costs to society are just massive. And it could be prevented if the justice system had its resources allocated to going after predators, locking them up properly, instead of just wasting all this money, mass incarceration, war on drugs, bullshit, just locking kids up for drugs. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And cops come up to us, you know, I had cops come up to me and say, we agree with you, Sean, but orders are from above. What we've got to do? The, the problem isn't really system. the police half the time. Stuck it in is, a bad system. It's CPS. It's, yeah. it's the justice system. And, the, you know, I, I know of, through other lines of work I work in, you know, five cases that are coming up which won't make court now because the CPS don't want to bother with it because it hasn't met a certain criteria. Yet these victims are left so damaged, you know, and one of them sadly attempted their life last week um on the way here i was on the phone to this Jesus. victim right and yeah you know, try and explain that just because cps don't want to take up your case doesn't mean we don't believe you yeah hmm. if 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 cps aren't willing to take up the case you're basically telling them that you don't believe hmm. their story you know and this this isn't just child abuse this is rape you know the amount of rape cases that never make court because CPS don't want to prosecute them. You know, what message are we sending out? And often they say they don't have the resources to do these cases because they're all out doing this over revenue generation stuff. So in the aftermath of all this media and stuff, was your brain settling down after the six months of mad media? Did you, did you start to like get a more normal life? Once I started working properly and friends family you know relationships i i started to actually work out who christopher was instead of being told who i am all my childhood and as a young adult in care you know you know what what i should be doing you know what i need to be doing do i you know you need to go to school you need to get this actually i just needed to find out who i was and that's okay a long time it's still a process of you know did you struggle with normal relationships? Maintaining oh, 100%. 100%. Them? Yeah. You know, how do you trust a woman after um, after you've been the victim of such horrific abuse? Um, it's, it's a tough one. It's still something that plays with me now. Um, yeah, it's just mad. Did you get a girlfriend? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, have multiple relationships long term now so when um, you first got a girlfriend then was that a, a strange situation for you to be in I, I i felt bad for her looking back now because um i probably acted like a bit of a cold dick i'm not surprised um, after everything you went through mm. you're gonna shut you're gonna be shut down emotionally yeah but i i'd never told her about all that mm. and she didn't know it's a bit much to tell though isn't it yeah in it's, the beginning and then the second relationship after that, I dropped it all on the first date. Don't do that either. 
<laughs> what happened there? <laughs> she didn't text back. <laughs> well, she goes to you. Yeah, yeah, she yeah, goes yeah, to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was quite upset by that. <laughs> I've given you everything. <laughs> um, so you learn little pieces yeah. as time goes on. Um, and at this point, you know, I still try to find myself, you know, and at one point I thought I was gay. You know, you go through everything, every emotion in the world. And then actually just takes sometimes meeting the right people to show you a bit of love, unconditional love, um, get a dog, um, get a proper job and start going down a straight and narrow road. And whose idea was it to write this book? So that the book was a weird one. Um, initially, I got offered a contract the, on the ride home from this morning. So I'm in my fancy Bentley, um, Bentley, darling, um, <laughs> yes, on my personal cell phone. And yeah, they phoned up like, we really want to see you. Uh, that was a big publishing house in London. We really want to see you because uh, we'd love to write a book with you. I'm like, I could barely bloody write. Uh, <laughs> but I put it off and put it off. And then I'd actually been writing in the background uh almost diaries of my life and i always wrote those diaries as a bit of a comedy so when eventually i did accept a deal with a large publishing house in london the book was pretty much there and they just had to tidy up apparently i wrote a lot of swear words (laughs) which weren't allowed (laughs) so how how did that feel and to have a be a successful author and all this it i'll tell you what because well you know with publishing when you're the time in between the main events happening can be ages so i i forgot it was being launched <laughs> as you do <laughs> and then uh, a member a journalist from the sun phoned me and said like have you seen your books climbing <laughs> i'm like Oh, it's been launched. <laughs> I, I totally just, cause I had so much going on, relationships, like, um, I was just getting into motorbikes and stuff. You know, I, I didn't have time for... For your um, own book? But yeah, for my own book <laughs> and these big life decisions. So, yeah, it was it was mad. It was amazing. And uh, to beat Harry Potter for six weeks was, <laughs> I, it was amazing. Wow, um, well done. But, you get used to a certain fame. I don't, I don't know if you've had this with your book when it's doing well. You think you are, oh, I thought it's God's gift. Not going to lie. Untouchable. Untouchable. Yes. And then two weeks later, you're, the blip is over. <laughs> and the ego deflates. The ego deflates. <laughs> you <It> never has. And <laughs> <laughs> ah, well. there we go. Chucking under <laughs> <of> that. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a weird one because I'd never had any ego as a kid and suddenly to be given, I'll tell you what was weirder than that, actually, being given money. I'd never had money. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't even have food, for God's sake. So, <laughs> the, you know, they give you the first release of money uh, when you sign the contract. And I've I've got big figures in my bank account well for one thing i had to get a bank account <laughs> to, to put oh yes because you wouldn't have had one well i also no identity i had no birth certificate i had nothing like that so it took it took six months to get a bank account yeah and you sh- even longer to get a passport <laughs> um 
so all these little things that normal people just when have. When you went to Florida when you were younger, was fake, it fake, fake passports? Fake passport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to, yeah. So she'd registered us. I guess this was before technology had really caught up. Yeah. And she's the parent. Yeah, so we went as her children, which we weren't. We were, so, yeah. Fake passports. <sighs> Interpol will be listening to this. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but, yeah, so all these, suddenly money. I spent a lot of money in two weeks. I, I blew 32K in two weeks. On what? I bought a Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> not the Bentley then. No, not the Bentley. I couldn't quite afford that. I couldn't drive. <laughs> I couldn't even drive. We bought a Mercedes. I bought a Mercedes. I bought a six and a half grand ma- um, mountain bike. I don't, I'm not a mountain biker. I'm really not. Mm. Uh, God, what else did I bought? I bought so many phones. Phone? Why? Car phone warehouse, come on. Well, I basically owned it. <laughs> basically owned it. <laughs> but there was a sad point to this as well. Because this is when I first started meeting my real parents. <gasps> How did that come about? So before the court case, um social worker comes into the room and says, We found your real parents. And I'm like, I wasn't that bothered. Like, Great. My brother was like, Oh my god, best thing ever. Um, do you want to go see them? I was like, no. I was kind of getting used to life without a parent figure. My brother was well up for it. Uh, was in the car within seconds. So I went along to support him and met my real dad, met my real mum. Um, I don't know. It never worked for me. Could you take us through the meeting a little bit? So they do it in these, like, it was a, a child's nursery that they'd hired for the late afternoon. So you're surrounded by teddy bears, and it's apparently where they do first meets. Not if you're a teenager. Like, take us to McDonald's or something. I don't know. Other brands are available. Uh, <laughs> but, so we're in this room filled with cuddly toys, and there's my mum. So my mum was in a wheelchair, and quite a large lady, like 25 stone plus lady. And there's my dad, who's like eight stone. And I just couldn't work it out in my head. Like, what the hell is going on? Like, Were they still together then? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, their love for each other was incredible. Um, you know, my mum had loads of medical stuff going wrong. They both shared the same addiction for years. And I, I never quite, I, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't feel the love. But then I felt guilty for not feeling love. My brother was basking in it. And they tried. Bless them. My parents tried. And then I got money. And I'm not going to sit here and badmouth them. But I spent a lot of money on them. And... Do you think that was perhaps trying to buy their love? 100%. 100%. I was literally... Because of guilt almost. You know, why am I not feeling love? Or maybe if we go out and have a champagne dinner. You know... And, you know, these are people who didn't have a lot of money. They were benefits and stuff. And then to be rolled into the Queen's Hotel in Cheltenham. Good hotel, Champ- It's not a bad hotel. Not bad. <laughs> Champagne dinner and stuff. And they just went along with it. But actually, what I needed at someone at that point was someone to say, stop. Let's save your money. Put it in a bank account. Stop buying bikes. Um, <laughs> it never happened. 
I mean, be, oh, yeah, we, our rent's coming up. Oh, take a grand. You know, oh, you know, oh, I like that, that look of your mountain bike. Oh, I'll buy you one. I blew through so much money. I had a decent job at the time as well. And I was. Blowing more than you weren't. Yeah. Well. So I burnt through the first part, the first check of the book, second check. Uh, I'd found alcohol. Um, not badly, but I liked a good night out. Friends. I'd come home and I'd work out. Actually, I bought all the drinks last night. Mm. Basically, I was being taken advantage of. And only five years later do you realise that, how badly that was happening. And that was slightly by my own parents as well. Uh, that, you know, a couple of years later, I made the decision actually to cut contact. Not fully, but enough. And then when my mum passed, um, it was easier for me to move on. When you first walked into that room and saw their faces, <coughs> did you look at them and, like, recognise anything? Or could you not remember anything? And did they change so much you couldn't see? I, I recognised my dad. My dad has a very unique face. And... Uh, my brother says it looks like Pinocchio. <laughs> um, he has massive nose. Not gonna lie. Concordia. <laughs> um, but my mum, I d- didn't recognise. Uh, apparently, she changed a lot, you know, over the years with all the medical stuff. And also, I don't think I gave him a fair chance in those early days. I was angry. I was going through the same day I I, I first met them was the day I had the coroner check over my body. So I think I'll probably put some blame on them. You know, you kind of gave us up. And this is like, you know, mm. yeah, it's a tough one. So Eunice is doing her sentence during these years. Did she try to contact you? No. After that, uh, after the last time I saw her across the screen was... And you definitely don't have any desire to contact her, do you? No, no. no. Okay. And she, she's lived close to us before quite close um she's in protective custody so she gets her name changed every couple of months because people find her and she gets attacked yeah there's still a lot of hate for her um and part of me is like actually just let's let it lie so she's still incarcerated <laughs> no no so she's out now she's been out for a few years um did they have to notify you when she was getting out yes yeah i still get the odd notification because um she she can attend religious events in our area so i get told oh don't go to this town on that day why why the the most of the time i'd actually be taking the piss to actually go to that town because where she's going is a crap hole <laughs> <laughs> but the one time i was packing up the car girlfriend uh dog and we were gonna have uh go for a river walk in chicksbury and i got a phone call oh she's attending a funeral in chicksbury you can't go like, I'm the victim here. Like, why can't I go? You can't like, go or shouldn't go. Can't go. No. Yeah. Um, after that, it was shouldn't go. But the first initial phone call was can't go. So I, I did go. I'm like, ass. I like to push the limit. I didn't actually go to where she was going to be, but I made a point of driving through the town. For your own. Yeah. Kind of- Just a kind of a... Because why should the victim be punished? Mm. So, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses, when this woman got convicted of this heinous crimes, completely disassociated from her. They did. 
Okay. But she got a new identity and she is currently serving. So I've been sent photos of her coming out of the Kingdom Hall two weeks ago. How does that work, John? (laughs) (laughs) For once, I'm speechless. Mm. (laughs) Um, They can't stop anyone going to a public religious service. I mean, whatever religion she was, I guess. Um, With Jehovah's Witnesses, someone who has committed a crime or several crimes like we've just heard of the most heinous type you, you know even even the you know a child abusers normally the elders are informed in the congregation so that the the parents of the children within that congregation can be at least warned so i don't understand i, I honestly don't understand what's happened in um sister spry's case that if she's attending kingdom halls um potentially she's still a danger isn't she so shouldn't she be getting shunned well she should only be getting shunned if she's disfellowshipped and i don't know whether she actually got disfellowshipped so i believe so i was asked about five years ago i was asked to attend a meeting to by the jehovah's witnesses to go over the abuse with them so there were five elders in the room and I gave them a, I didn't particularly want to be there, but one of the elders was one of the ones who actually probably saved us. So I felt I owed him a little bit. How did he save you? Ah, so I didn't explain that, did I? No. So, ah, sorry. Oh. <laughs> I just expect you to know this, Sean. <laughs> um, so Victoria had been attending church on her own. This was just before the arrests. And two elders were very concerned about her scars and stuff and against local advice they decided to intervene and basically kidnapped victoria not quite like that but they got her out of the kingdom hall when eunice was going to pick her up put her in her car drove her to a safe house and said we know something's wrong you're coming in here covered in scars you've face has been something's happened to your face she'd actually had sandpaper rubbed across it what it's a photo of that out there it's it's not nice mutilated her mutilated sorry so these two elders had had enough and made a stand called the police um and started this whole ball going and at first victoria's like everything's fine blah 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 and they're like, Victoria, we know you. <laughs> like, um, something's going on. Tell us. Now, this isn't the first time people had um, challenged Eunice's behaviour before. Others, um, an elder came to me about six weeks ago and told me that quite a lot of people had come forward in the past and it'd been noted you probably know more about this than me but it'd been noted but due to lack of evidence it it wasn't going to be acted upon um thing is about that though chris the elders are not the ones that go and get that evidence the police are the ones that get the evidence the yeah. police are the ones that go around the house and find the torture influence yeah. the police are the ones that look at mobile phones and and laptops to see what someone's been reading or books that they've been reading so 
Um, what it's, gives them the right to do it? It's excellent that those two elders, you know, Put it forward. many, many, many years too late yeah. did it. And that is excellent. What, what we want our elders to do that on every occasion that anyone comes to them and says, I'm being abused. We want, we want them to report it to the police. Yeah, rather than... So there's this crazy thing in the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you'll probably go on more to this, the two-witness rule. Um, if a serious, say, rape's happened, uh, if someone else hasn't witnessed it, they won't report it to the police because it's... Uh, you'll have to... Hmm. But they don't report it to the police anyway. They, okay. they do not report to the police. They will ring Bethel and inform the headquarters of Jehovah's Witnesses and um, it, it's left at that and then Jehovah's Witnesses will give a press statement that says we don't we don't stop anyone going to the police we don't prevent anyone going to the police but that's just a very negative thing if I saw someone breaking into your car and all your stuff was stolen and you were annoyed about it and, and you found out I've, I witnessed it and I'd say, well, I didn't stop. I didn't stop anyone going to the police to tell them. Well, that's no big deal, is it? Because <laughs> I'm the one that saw it. So Jehovah's Witnesses make a big thing in their press statements as we don't stop anyone going to the police. But go to the police yourself. Yeah. If if someone's reported, you know, a predator in the congregation, you'd think it'd be the first thing they'd call the police and like. We've got you know, pretty sound evidence that this is happening rather than well, have they got a direct witness? No. Well, if not, it's between them and God. And that's basically, you know, it's layman terms, but, but basically it. Mm. So the two witness rule is ridiculous. Well, that, that's why I know, you know, you, you may be coming on to the, um, the independent inquiry. I don't know whether you're going to ask any questions about that, um, Sean, but just recently what's called ICSA or the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. It's been a government um, inquiry. It's been on for about four years now. They've covered um, the Catholic church, the Anglican church, and each, each of the um, churches or establishments, the panel has looked at and taken evidence. They've been, they found massive corruption in, in all of them and they've been very outspoken. And then recently they undertook one for Jehovah's Witnesses and some other religions. And the after taking evidence from hundreds and statements from ex-Jehovah's Witnesses or victims, the ICSA inquiry came to the conclusion that Jehovah's Witnesses are reprehensible for much child abuse and for not reporting it to the police. Um, Thus allowing, say, it's a predator to carry on abusing others in the congregation. Mm. Basically untouchable. It's so well. This Ixa, um, they, they haven't completed the inquiry. They're, they're still going to be given some more stuff. But with Jehovah's Witnesses, they made four recommendations, and it's only it's been in the news the last few weeks. They made four recommendations. Number one, if any elder gets approached by anyone that says I'm being abused, call the authorities. If if anyone contacts the Jehovah's Witness headquarters in Chelmsford and says so-and-so is being abused or so-and-so said they're being abused, the headquarters ring the authorities. And the reason why ICSA made those recommendations is because that's not being done now. 
Although Jehovah's Witnesses have this, they have this air of press release that you know, as if as if they're they're doing it. They're just not reporting matters to the police. And the third, the third um, thing that Dicks are, are required or are asking is that Jehovah's Witnesses have a very clear child protection policy in every congregation that all of the members have a clear protection policy for children free of any religious jargon so that they told put, report matters to the police and and the fourth one is perhaps the most damning recommendation was forget this two witness rule in matters of child abuse the, i think they said something like the two witness rule has no place in a child protection policy so if Jehovah's Witnesses would only now abide by those four recommendations, then a lot of the problems that they've been they've been um, creating over the last 20, 30, 40 or 50 years would be gone. Okay, so you give me a better understanding then of how your situation ended with these elders reported it to the police, yeah. which is a great thing. But if if it was actually elders that reported it to the police, how come she's been accepted back now? By, I, by the same so institution? So I, I believe, I was never officially told, but I believe she was disfellowshipped. She was disfellowshipped. But that doesn't stop you fully coming back, does it, later no. on? As long as you've taken steps to mm, yes. bettering yourself. She is likely to have been visited in prison. Uh, yeah. Jehovah's Witness... Normally, two ministers, two elders are assigned to go to the prison. If someone requests, and even someone who's disfellowshipped, they ha they have a right to to spiritual healing. Healing, yeah. And so, uh, again, oh, I don't know this. But uh, yeah, it, they've it, never fully released what's happened. But it, it may well be that after many years in prison, she may have demonstrated repentance. And and so they may have rel relinquished that disfellowshipping state. She, so she may not be disfellowshipped now and, and may be just free to go. I, well, I don't know that. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I would love them to be quite open and tell us. Mm. Um, so she's been convicted of heinous crimes. If you're in prison and you're making atonement for those crimes, there's a path to redemption. There, there is, and and there's a very quite a striking example of that that um, I've just discovered recently, and this is absolutely true. The Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, probably one of the worst murderers we've had in this country, has become a Jehovah's Witness in prison. He's been baptised. Arrangements were made for him to be baptised in prison, and so if Peter Sutcliffe. And the, and the Jehovah's Witness get made a statement that they, they feel he has now changed his life around. And that may well be true. I don't know. But if someone like Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, can be baptized as a Jehovah's Witness, then there's hope for all. Mm. And there's also the Night Stalker Delroy Grant and the Mad. Um, the Night Stalker Delroy Grant, he did a similar thing, did he? Yeah, we have just, funny enough, that's just been on the television. The last month or two, there's been a series of manhunts, and the, the Night Stalker one was Delroy Grant, whose wife was a, a, dis a disabled sister in the congregation in Forest Hill, and he got baptised as a Jehovah's Witness in the Forest Hill congregation. So um, so Eunice Spry is in good hands when it comes to um, criminal... She's <laughs> got friends. She's got, <laughs> yeah... So how old is Eunice now? 
old <laughs> old <laughs> i don't know her exact age should be early 70s now so how was your your sister approached for her book i don't actually know we weren't talking at the time um again this tragic thing of we remind each other of the abuse so we don't tend to we didn't tend to keep contact so and that, that went on for a long time did it yeah on and off for years until her passing sadly what what um was the circumstances of her passing <sighs> so victoria committed suicide and um she'd been receiving mental health treatment with gloucestershire nhs and um with covid and everything it was overloaded and they decided to release her to allow someone else more urgent in and release the bed and it's yeah she hung herself in her own flat and that's how long ago Uh, a year ago yeah this month Mm. so you went through this whole situation eunice goes to prison it's a victory for you and then this happens does that knock you back so much? So I've had a lot of death in my life, um, in the lines of work I'm in, etc. This this was different. This was, even though we hadn't seen each other at all, this broke me, absolutely broke me. There's there's a bond we had, and it's it's stronger than blood. It's because you went through all this together. It's it's a bond. It's it's tough. It's tough to even describe what we had. It's a bond of made in survival, you know, forged in hope and survival that if we stuck together, we we might make it through this. And we did. And we survived the physical. She survived the car crash? She survived so much? You can't escape the medical. The mental. Mental. You just can't. <coughs> um, I, I, I don't cry. I don't cry. I'm not a big crier. I bored my head out at her funeral. I had to be carried out. How, I, how did you hear what had happened first? Who told you? So I had a phone call from a police officer saying, we need to come and talk to you. And I thought I'd been caught speeding again. So I was <laughs> quite jovial. Mm. I was quite jovial. Like, if you really need to come and talk to me, I'll be home in 10 minutes. We're just out walking the dogs. So I got home. And then the CID car outside. That's not normal. And he just basically said, "I'm not going, you know, not going to BS you at all. Your sister committed suicide yesterday." And it's just like at first it didn't register. I'm like, "Yeah, thank you for coming and telling me." I think he was a bit shocked because there wasn't the instant tears or anything that. But my mind was just clicking into gear you went into shock yeah yeah i remember going in talking to my partner and like um you know my sister's died did you expect it because of all the issues she's had no no because you expect the fairy tale ending don't you you always expect the best ending you expect i know she's down at the moment but she'll be all right you know i know things are bad but it'll be all right this pandemic's been hard it's been hard for anyone who doesn't have mental health issues or health issues. Um, I've seen it break a lot of people. And then you take someone who's already going through physical and mental hell. Was she on her own during the pandemic? She, she had a partner, but the 
the mental damage was she was very hard to live with you know and you know her partner's amazing and would do the world for her but i think she probably wanted to be alone and probably you know buffed his um threw his help away most of the time probably and then to get that news it, it was it was the next day when it hit me because i'd gone into work as normal uh just had a quick word with my boss oh my sister died last night he's like what the hell are you doing here i'm like oh yeah it's fine it's fine it's fine and then half an hour later it really wasn't fine i was i was a mess and anger pure anger pure anger i again don't get particularly angry but this was anger and like she's done this to her eunice this is eunice you know while she didn't physically put the rope around her neck metaphorically she'd had that noose around our necks for all of our lives and she just decided to tighten it this time and i lost my sister and i thought i'd got over eunice i thought i'd put it to bed and i won't say forgiven her but just pushed it aside and now it's it's a daily battle of anger slash resentment that this has happened and yeah still coming to terms with that it's it's a year normally death doesn't affect me a couple of days i'm sad we move on this is still there who um did you go to the funeral with so covid limits the numbers of funeral we could only i think it was 15 so my little brother myself my other sibling um the family she'd made over the years who i'd never met because i so nothing stupid not to put the olive branch out and try and make things right they were amazing they came up there was no animosity at all there's just they were amazing hearing her favorite song i i didn't know her favorite song these are all things she'd had her journey since all the charities she'd worked for they attended they couldn't come in so they all stood outside and it broke me absolutely broke me she shouldn't have been in that box yeah my my best mate my best mate died last year and um it was like they allowed 29 people at the funeral it was just really something else yeah it was intense mm. yeah it's almost more intense when there's less people because you hear each other's grief if there's went to a funeral a couple of years ago and it was you know, 130 people you're not aware you're in your own little bubble but when you're in this massive crematorium room and there's dotted around and all you can do is actually watch each other's grief it's just it it was tough and the police officer who'd done our case victoria she she attended as well and it was just full circle you know it was as if this last 10 years meant nothing yeah how was your little brother at the funeral he he puts on a brave face. I, I know he was hurting. 
I know he's hurting and normally I'm the one putting on the brave face and watching other people hurt. It's very rare that he has to carry me out. I'm the big bro. I'm meant to be the one to support him. He had to support me. I think that's the first time he's ever had to do that. He did offer to drive. I didn't let him. But... (sighs) You're so brave. I'm really not. You really are. Did you have like a family at that point? You know, you had to support people. I'd made, you know, I've got amazing family now. Um, My support networks are incredible. And I threw it all away because when you're in that type of mood, it's quite self-destructive. And I was, I'll admit I was quite a hard person to be around probably for a month, but they, they, they were always there for me. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, a lot of long walks with the dog on my own, screaming at nature. Literally, River Seven, screaming. Screaming at trees. <laughs> Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Poor dog's like, whoa, <laughs> this one's new. Still not coping with that yet. Do you think that her fighting spirit lives on in you? Her survival? She was a lot better person than me. She had a way stronger spirit than me. Her drive to help people. I won't say I pretend to help people, but she would bury herself to help other people, whereas I will. I'll try and help people as much as I can, but I don't go to bed worrying about it. She destroyed her life. And I think that's partly where her depression took over as well, because actually the more you listen to other people's stories, trying to help them, it's very hard to turn that key off and it's a lot of dark energy yeah and she was quite mentally weak at the time as well I don't you know she was a good good girl but it's good Chris that you you're on this show telling your story no no holds barred I mean we've all been absolutely shocked I only knew a little knew a little bit anyway we're all absolutely shocked and rocked by it. There are going to be people watching this who, if if they've only just gone through a quarter or a tenth, will be thinking, "Boy, he's he's made it. He's he, look look how he's come back, and he's he might still be suffering, but he's he's fighting it." So you are doing good by telling your story now, by to to for people to know that um, you can get over it. Yeah, and if you get professional help, and it is out there, you can. You can get it. And that's that's the main reason I do these interviews and things. And, you know, once every year I'll do a TV interview. Just one, to raise awareness for cases like this. Two, to remind people of just the basic signs. You know, if you really believe, say you're a professional and you in your gut you think something's wrong here, you might not make any friends investigating it you might save a kid's life. You know, it's... That's the reason I do these interviews. What inspired you to help other survivors? I don't want anyone to be sat on that bridge. I don't want anyone to be sat there questioning whether they should exist. Um... 
I, you know, my my dream is a place where we stop having survivors and actually catch it so early that actually we don't need to call them survivors. They were we dealt with it early. Um, I think if we've got to survivor status, it's too late, and we could be there to support them as much as possible. But the damage is done. Um, you know, in an ideal world, people would spot the signs of abuse early and maybe step in before it becomes a case like ours. I'm sick of seeing serious case reviews. I get five or six land on my desk a week like for comment, each one tragic within their own circumstances. Yes, they might not be as bad as each other or whatever but each one even if a kid's just had a smack in that might be the most traumatic thing in their life you know um i I get asked a lot you know uh but but their case you know is it's you know is have you ever read a case worse than yours it's not about this isn't top trumps you know every single bit of child abuse is is wrong it may not all be physical it might be mental yeah the mental abuse it might be religious it might be cultural it might be whatever it's wrong i that's the reason i sit here doing this well done thank you man you're so brave and i'm sure the people watching this are just you know they can see your spirit and what you've been through and i'm sure in the comments there's going to be so much love and respect for what you're doing when you're helping these people then these survivors is that therapeutic for you? It, it can be. It can be. Um, it can be damaging. It can be damaging. There's so much dark energy still. There's a lot of dark energy and there's also, you get dragged into the court cases and things. Um, also, it's it's hard to, it's hard to manage expectation when someone messages you. So, 10 minutes ago I had someone message me over there and they've I'm scanning through it but they'd literally messaged an A4 sheet's worth of their life what can I do to help them the expectation is suddenly on me and that that's hard it's a lot of pressure the pressure's there all the time and I'm not saying don't please for the love of God carry on messaging me if I can just me just saying replying one word if that can help please do but there also needs to be services in place that victims shouldn't have to message me i'm thankful that they do and i'm thankful that they put their trust in me to maybe try and help or something or even just be a listening ear but we should live in a a society that has resources to support these victims so, so this that, is private messages through Facebook? And- yeah, so I've got a couple of groups on Facebook that I help run and my personal inbox, yeah, is over 300 messages a week. And do you want us to include those um, links with this video? Yeah, happy to, happy to, yeah. What are the names of those? So pages? our main group, which we've just started fresh uh, to for a more professional approach is We Are Resilience. And it basically sums up what you, what us victims are. We are resilient. And yeah, that's our main group. Feel free to add us. We've got a range of professionals, a range of 
ex-victims, a range of people who are who are going through hell but just want to listen. We don't judge. We 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 don't force you to report it or anything like that. It's just a place to feel wanted. And yeah, feel free to drop us a message. And do you think people like watch you being interviewed and just, you know, see your strength and your bravery and they think to themselves perhaps, how can I get to where you are? So my my whole point of doing these interviews is to show them that there's an end. I'm not saying this is going to be a pretty nice fairy tale journey for you. Um, it's going to be hard. You're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, and there are probably going to be a lot more bad days than good at times. But I'm proof that it can happen. And with a little bit of guidance, with a little bit of help, with a little bit of love, we can all get to this point as well. And I, I, I haven't finished my journey. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I'm cured. The fact that I can't sit here without nearly crying proves that. That's because you're human. <laughs> yeah. Your story is so, so raw. It is raw. It is raw. Hmm. But, yeah, that's why it's just, I just want to prove to people that there is hope. Hope hmm. is, hope is everything. And at times I've needed someone to remind me of that, be it my social worker, be it a police officer, again, drag me off a bridge. Oh, I've got to stop going on bridges. Mm. Um, be it my partners, you know, who have just been there to pat me on the back and say it's all okay. You can get to this point as well, guys. Can I just mention as well, I've just started doing some work with Samaritans. Oh, really? And uh, I've been absolutely fascinated by the training that those volunteers go through. And they are, you know, even if before you get to professional help, if you just want to talk to someone who's not going to judge you, you ring 116-123, 116-123 in whatever state you're in, and the Samaritans will, will listen. They won't tell you what to do, but they'll listen. But that will give you maybe some a chance to then to look up some professional help. Mm. Yeah, and they, they've we'll also all got information below the video. They've also got a really good text service now as well. Yeah. Um. So you don't even need to talk to them, but you can just vent anonymously. And yeah, Samaritans are amazing. How do you guys know each other? Facebook. <laughs> yeah well we, we both we both used to be jehovah's witnesses <laughs> we did we did <laughs> that's how you're both apostates <laughs> well i don't know if well i i haven't ever been disfellowshipped i'm nor am i chris are you no oh, so we're legit I'll get on to them now we are legit. <laughs> no, no. It, it's through obviously through jehovah's witnesses um there was um several meetups of ex Jehovah's Witnesses. It was quite a nice time a few years ago. Yeah. Someone yes. locally said, Oh, if you're an ex Jehovah, do you want to come and have a cup of tea somewhere? And we did that and it snowballed from there. But we are actually on Facebook. Yeah. There are support groups on Facebook um of for ex Jehovah's Witnesses, some particularly just for for um victims of child abuse. I was a victim of child abuse. I spoke, I think, about that a year ago on your show. And your daughter was And as my well. daughter as well. So we were a two-generation um, abuse family. Just just, um, just let me tell the viewers then, from what I remember, and correct me please if I'm wrong. So his daughter was abused and 
the abuser was protected and that was something that made you think twice about being in that organization wasn't it yeah well she she came forward uh, 25 years before the abuser actually got dealt with so um so she had to live within the jehovah's witness community as being a liar um and um eventually it was a long story but it, it eventually um then we found one of the t- one another three victims um the police um similar to what chris was saying in the early days when when my daughter went to the police it was well, look we absolutely believe you but it's your word against his yeah and it's not in the public interest we can't put up a case, a court case because you won't win if it's your word against his um and that took 25 years to sort of run through and it's only when my daughter did something that i considered really crazy she saw she saw a picture on facebook of the abuser with a young lady on it young girl on his lap on his lap no and she thought i'm not having this and she actually wrote a 12 page document of all the things that he had done to her (gasps) where he was what he did and she came around and she said, I'm sending it to everybody that knows him. Wow. All the Jehovah's Witnesses locally, all the workers, all the everyone. And we just went, oh, my goodness, the, you know, there's going to be problems here. And it just happened that one of those 12-page documents fell into the lap of a detective <laughs> who read it and said, we've got to do something about this. Yeah. And he ran with it. And the rest is history, and we had a three-week trial, and he got sentenced to 14 years. Great. But interestingly, he's he's just been released as well after seven years as well. Oh, pathetic. Oh. What about the perpetrator in your case? Um, he was a Jehovah's Witness. He, he died in prison. Um, again, I, I, I've not had anything like Chris has had, but... At the beginning, the reason I didn't come forward because of the shame again. Yeah, 100%. I didn't realise what was happening. I was like 13 when he was doing things to me. And I thought, that's a bit odd. Was he? And he told me all sorts of stories why he was doing it. And I was so naive, I hadn't got a clue. And it was only when I became a sort of an adult that I realised what he had been doing. And by then I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to tell anyone about that because it makes me look an, an idiot. And did you still have to interact with him as an adult? I did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Um, um, but then I just got on with life and I have to say I really did get on with life and it hasn't had an effect on me like it will have done for mum many um, but I regret that because then I found out he'd done it to other people and eventually um, two other boys now grown um, reported it to the police um, they were they were sons of a Jehovah's Witness it was all to do with the Jehovah's Witnesses and he got sent into prison, um, and he died in prison. He, he was only in prison a couple of months, and he died in prison. Was that a natural death, or did he get? It was no. It's a natural death. It was a natural death. Well, <laughs> as far as You're I going know, for the story there, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, oftentimes they do get attacked. Uh, yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah, I know Eunice got attacked badly. So. Yeah, uh, no. So um, it's it's quite rife, and that's that's the disappointing thing, Sean and Jen that. The Jehovah's Witnesses won't have it. They just, they just don't think that the reason why this ICSA, this independent, it, it's an independent inquiry looked at Jehovah's Witnesses was because of all the amount of people that were coming forward saying, this has happened, that's happened. All the court cases that keep going up. The Jehovah's Witnesses are settling these cases out of court. They're paying victims Pay to shut off. up. 
Right. And then the, perpetra- and I know then that. the perpetrator walks. Well, no, the perpetrator, often it, the perpetrator has been found guilty. But but then 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 the victim says, well, he, he was an elder or he, he was working for you. Um, and so then Jehovah's Witnesses become liable. I see. So, so they have to be found guilty in court first. Yes, it's much more helpful to be found guilty in court first. And then the victim then takes Jehovah's Witnesses to court. And I can reel off many, many, many court cases where I know for a fact they've been paid off. So the Jehovah's Witnesses therefore have an incentive to prevent these convictions because of the payoffs that will be required. It, well, that that is one way of looking at it. Yes, that, that um, as soon as someone, I mean, I, I know in my own in our own case, I can just tell you completely honestly that we had two Jehovah's Witness elders assigned to sit in the court for three weeks. They knew me, and I knew them. They said to me, to our face, "We've been sent here." Because the society, the Watchtower Society, are very interested in this case. And when it's finished, we're going to offer support and help. And I remember my daughter thinking, wow, that, wow, eventually now they're going to do something. As soon as the guilty verdict was announced, they're gone. The next thing, we can't find them. There's no, no contact, no, no nothing. And we're thinking, where, where's this, where's this love and support that we were told? In fact, the circuit overseer, um, I will name him because I've spoken. Let's be careful with names. Okay, we, I won't name him. The channel's yeah, had enough legal problems. I won't name him. The circuit overseer, who was a travelling overseer, said to my face, John, the society are interested in this case. No stone will be left unturned. Those are his very words. A year later, when nothing has been done, I managed to get to see him. I literally stopped him in the street and said, what's happening? He said, John, oh, that's right. what I actually said to him. You know, you told me that the stones, no stone would be left unturned. I said, the stones are still all in place. <laughs> and he said, John, we were pulled. We were pulled. And by that, he meant watched our organization. As soon as that guilty, guilty verdict was announced, off. No phone calls, no help, no support. So, again, the press statement they make is, we always support victims of, uh, of child abuse. No, they don't. And that, that's honestly, I'm, I'm looking into the cameras at your viewers and I'm telling you that's exactly what happened. They are frightened of court cases and they are settling them out of court. So what support have you had? How have you put yourself back together after going through this and then to go through it yourself and then to have your daughter go through it that's like chris you know went through a lot and then something else happened and it was just whoa it's like you've gone through similar years later it's gonna happen it's happened to your daughter it's opened the floodgates it yeah it did but because i was a good jehovah's witness and i thoroughly believed it absolutely all um i wanted to be loyal to the organization and as as ixa said in their report most um religious organizations are more interested in their reputations and jehovah's witnesses have this saying don't bring reproach on jehovah's name shut up about it don't do anything that's going to cause any ripples so most people will just do that and absorb and i just absorbed it because i didn't want to cause any ripples for the organization 
Um, but yeah, I, I had some, some mental health problems because my, both my daughters then got disfellowshipped, which means completely shunned. And so for 10 years, I had to completely shun my daughters. Oh my God. And that means just walking by them, not speaking, you know, not, not, not lifting the phone up, not talking to them. And even though one of them's abused. So I was trying to help her get over the abuse, but at the same time, as a good elder, I'm, I mustn't speak to her. So how did you get through So that, that, that was, that was, <laughs> that was uh, horrific because I'm trying to be a good Jehovah's Witness, but also be a good dad and help my daughter. And eventually I just, um, I cracked, I suppose. I actually, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I, I was sat in a, in a, an elder's home and the circuit overseer, who was the traveling overseer and the presiding overseer, who's the chairman of the elders, both incidentally, who don't have children, said to me, because I was getting into trouble because I was talking to my disfellowship children, give up your daughters and stay an elder. Give up your daughters and stay an elder. They wanted me to stay as an elder. And I had an out-of-body experience, a very strange thing. It was I was up in the corner for about a second, looking down on the three of us. And I now know what it is. It's called extreme stress. That's what it is. It's nothing odd. It's, it's a bit like what the, their children go to. They go to a place when, they're, when they are being beaten or hit, they can escape. Yeah. And this was an escape. I didn't want to hear this. And when I came to, I just thought, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. I'm just not going to do it anymore. So that's how I ended my Jehovah's Witness career by just standing up, shaking both their hands and saying, thanks ever so much, but you won't be seeing me anymore. And, uh, I went through the front door and I just remember jumping up in the air and punching the air and all this release went, <laughs> it was a physical, like, and then I thought, oh, my goodness, I've got to go home and tell the wife <laughs> who, who remained a Jehovah's yeah. Witness for another 10 years because she was a solid Jehovah's Witness. But she could see I was mentally suffering, I think. So I was on the verge, I think, of a mental breakdown, I think. And if I hadn't have stopped then, I think I would have done. But I managed to get out. and Fair play. So I didn't have any big doctrinal punch up i didn't have a big um you know so we're talking about being apostates if if speaking out about child abuse and trying to get it stopped means you are an apostate then i'm an apostate sign me up <laughs> <laughs> but that's all i'm doing that's all i'm doing i'm saying you have a problem with child abuse open your eyes it's there don't put the religion first put the children first and if you think I'm an apostate because I'm saying that, well, so be it. And if people watching this missed the original interview we did with John over a year ago, stay tuned at the end of this podcast because we're going to run it back to back. So you'll be able to watch that if you want to watch it right after this. And I was going to ask, did you, you, I can't remember exactly what you just said, but you said that people who kind of criticize or expose jehovah's what was it you said about that a minute ago then that's there's a term for it not allowed to do it um re bring reproach on jehovah's name did your interview a year ago bring reproach on jehovah's name well and have they reached out to you about it no they haven't they haven't reached out but um okay. no that they haven't <laughs> reached out but um i don't know i i i, I think we we've we've tried to be 
polite and reasonable about those religious beliefs. Chris isn't saying that all Jehovah's Witnesses are like Eunice. Not at all. I'm not saying. Chris is actually, you know, it was some Jehovah's who were actually the hero of your story. Yeah. There's good and bad everywhere, isn't there, in every organization? Yeah. That's right. So, um, So we're not saying all Jehovah's Witnesses are bad, but there are certainly some bad things going on and uh, it needs stopping. And it's it's a tough one because a lot of this is historic. Um, and, you know, we're all, you know, I, I have something happened with an elder and myself. I've never reported it. Um, I've never gone to the police with it. It's something, I think I mentioned it on Facebook the other day. I don't know. I, I didn't read that, Chris. You, anyway. you commented on it. No, <laughs> 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 but um, it's, you know, it's so historic. It's it's almost hmm. part of me is like, oh, it's not worth bothering with. It is. <laughs> all these stories need to be told. All these stories need to be heard so that it puts pressure on any religion that hides child abuse. I'm not anti-Jehovah's Witness. I'm not anti-Muslim. I'm not anti-Christian. I'm not no. anti-Hindu, Buddhist. I don't... Your religion, go for it. But if you're... If your religion is hiding child abuse, did this thing happen while you were being tortured by Eunice? Yes. So there was one. Uh, there was one Jehovah's Witness that Eunice trusted. If we'd run away, he would come and find us. And he was, he wasn't a very nice person. Mm. So the person that you was, you thought you might be able to just come to your rescue was actually tried something on yeah was a pedophile sounds like she had a network of these thugs and predators i i don't want to say that but she she knew people Uh, i i don't know if these people attract each other Mm. (laughs) is there a yellow pages for them one one of the energy um, one of the young lady one of the ladies that gave evidence to ixa evidence because jehovah's witnesses claim we don't separate children from their parents so we don't need child protection policies because our children only ever come to the meetings with their parents. Well, there's hundreds or not thousands of Jehovah's Witness children over the years have been abused. So something's going wrong somewhere. But one of the ladies that gave evidence to Ixa on, it was on Channel 4, she called herself Sarah, and I know who she is. At the Kingdom Hall, where 70 people are all sat in a hall, she sat as a young girl in front a guy behind her with a big Bible on his lap puts his hand under the chair and is touching her private parts while she sat on a, in the kingdom hall watching the speaker and she's fidgeting. And so she gets a clip. In fact, she gets taken out and given a wallet for, 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 for fidgeting. And the guy behind is trying it on with her with his hands. Now, I'm only mentioning that not to be sordid, but to say wherever these people are, they'll try anything. So don't try and say, well, we don't need a policy because we don't leave children alone with their parents, uh, without their parents. They do leave children alone without their parents. And anyway, this guy, this guy did it in the Kingdom Hall with 70 other people watching. Mm. So, um, so be very careful. Oh, I'm just, my mind's blown by this yeah. whole thing. <laughs> we're wow. going to wrap it up here. Yeah. 
Um, is there anything either of you feel that we've left out or you'd like to say in conclusion to the people watching this? I think I've said my piece, to be honest. Um, I would just like to reiterate that when Jehovah's Witnesses give their press statements, which they have every right to do, don't be fooled by the wording of them, because the latest one says, we always report matters to the authorities. It, it starts off by saying, we always report matters of, of child abuse to the authorities. But then they add this little caveat, where the law requires us to do so. The law doesn't require them to do so in the UK, so they don't. But everyone's still hooked on, we always report to the child abuse to, to the police. And that's what you carry away from that message. But they don't because they're not required to do so. So you, you just need to be very carefully reading the press re, press reports. They they are they are devious and want to send you a different message than what's actually happening. Have people reached out to you who've watched the interview, perhaps, who are apostates? Oh yeah. And what's what kind well, of interactions have you had? It's it's just reassuring because you know when when you when you think you're on your own. Uh, and you come to a conclusion that something you've believed all your life, because I was in it nearly 60 years. Agreed. So you, you think, well, am, am I on my own? And then you realize, no, someone else has come to that conclusion. And someone else has come to that conclusion. Then you realize not just like three, four or five thousands. In fact, probably as many Jehovah's Witnesses who are in now have, have left. Agreed. And we know that because of the amount of people that are talking online. And you've got a community of these. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, and there's, thousands more that i don't know about mm. so it's reassuring to know that you actually are not going mad mm. you have come to the right conclusion maybe for different reasons it's not all for the same reason um so so yeah i have had quite a lot of messages from people from since the last podcast saying saw you on sean's podcast um glad you mentioned this mentioned that i found this and if you read the comments, most of the comments, you do get some nutcases, I'm afraid, Sean, at the end as well. <laughs> but <laughs> but most of the comments were very supportive. And they say, yes, you what these guys said was absolutely true. This happened to me. And I think that's reassuring then. So we'll have your links below the video, John. But do you want to tell the public where they can find you? Um, well, I, I'm very happy to be um, contacted on, on my email address, which is John dot viney that's j-o-h-n dot viney v-i-n-e-y at ntlworld.com and um one thing i do say is i don't debate religion i'm not interested in trying to talk you out of becoming a jehovah's witness but if you feel that there's a comment you want to share or want to have a little discussion i'm very happy to do so and what about you chris where can people find you so they can add me on facebook uh i'm christopher spry on facebook instagram and twitter all the same all right, please let us know then in the comments what you thought about this video. So the links for John and Chris will be down there in the description box. Also down there will be Jen's links as well if you want to check her stuff out on Instagram and the Organic Cotton Clothing Company. And huge thank you to Joan James for coming out today and filming this. And, <laughs> <laughs> and stay tuned if you want to watch what we did last year. With John and another Chris. And another Chris. <laughs> Different Chris. I can only come on with a Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how you guys feel about hugs. Should we have a group hug? Yeah. yeah. After going through all of this. Oh, that was something. There's a release. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Here at Boomer and Jen, we offer a wide range of organic or recycled clothing. We all know our planet is important. We only have this one. So it's vital that we all work together to slow down and reverse the changes to the environment. Whilst we all know that big industry are having a significant effect on pollution, here at Boomer and Jen, we believe that if we all make small changes, we can do our part. Fast fashion causes detrimental effects to the planet. Not only is nearly 20% of global wastewater produced by the fast fashion industry, but there is a considerable amount of fast fashion ending up in landfill. So let's move away from fast fashion items that are only worn once or twice and start wearing extremely comfortable, durable and environmentally friendly clothing and ethical jewellery. Boomer and Jen was founded in a quiet town in Devon in 2018. It has now gone from strength to strength as the world is becoming more aware of the current climate situation, helping our customers to buy sustainable, quality clothing. All of our products are fair trade and registered with the Global Organic Textile Standard Association. Check us out on organic cotton clothing dot co dot uk